Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hi, this is Steve. This Friday, John and I are thrilled to welcome FX Movie Download's Sasha Pearl Raver to talk about her all-time favorite film, which also happens to be one of the most requested movies in the history of the cinephiles. The second film of one of our most iconic directors, this indie launched some careers, revived others, and changed the film world in ways we are still feeling today. Of course, we've already talked about his first film, Reservoir Dogs, but it's Pulp Fiction, which suddenly made Quentin Tarantino one of the most important and influential filmmakers in Hollywood. Released in 1994 and featuring iconic performances from John Travolta, Bruce Willis, Uma Thurman, Christopher Walken, Amanda Plummer, Tim Roth, Harvey Keitel, Ving Rhames, Eric Stoltz, and of course, Samuel L. Jackson in the role that changed his career forever. Pulp Fiction is a challenging, groundbreaking film whose structure, dialogue, and sense of style remain completely unique. So, that's Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction with special guest Sasha Pearl Raver this Friday on The Cinephiles. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. Welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Welcome, everybody. My name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, host of numerous shows, and occasionally an actor here in Los Angeles. And we're very happy to welcome a woman who needs no introduction from me, <laughs> because she said that she would do a far better job than I did. She I began, truth. Yes. That is, that's the sense that's that I true. got. I said, if you want me to do it, look, you guys just introduced yourselves. Yes. So if you want, I am Sasha Pearl Raver. I'm the host of FX Movie Download, and you can see me all the time on Screen Junkies News, as well as a bunch of other places. Yeah. And I am Mother of Swayze and All Things Crazy. Wow. Mother of Swayze and Boom. All Things Crazy. Yeah. Nice. And, and I, what I learned in my hosting um, class was always start with insulting the guest. Oh, good. That's just the best <laughs> way to it, do it. Bro. So I feel like I'm doing really well. And I feel like there should be some contention in this anyway, because the movie what? we're talking about today is Pulp Fiction, yeah. which has some of mm-hmm. the craziest conflicts in any movie I can think of. Mm-hmm. Before we actually get into that, okay. how R-rated can this podcast get? Because Absolutely we are R-rated. talking Tarantino. Well, yeah. I guess we can have nudity because it's audio only. So <laughs> I would like to stay away from any really brutal violence no it's great but the fact that Roka's not wearing pants is already perfect just shirt cocking it up right here on the podcast look you gotta be relaxed when you do an audio (laughs) every point I take off a piece of clothes yes (laughs) every time there's a racial epithet oh oh boy it's a good thing we're not doing Django (laughs) All right. (laughs) on that note Sasha how did you first come to Pulp Fiction 
I was talking about this actually when I was watching the movie. I was oh. thinking about the moment that I saw it because I remember it so so vividly uh you and i both are northern california children right and i went to high school at this teeny little place a uh, little private school in berkeley um, right off of telegraph avenue and there was this awesome movie theater that i didn't know at the time but now i know was an independent movie theater just down the block and it was like where i saw kids even though i wasn't supposed oh, to see it because it was nc-17 I, I, I know the theater yes right. they were playing pulp fiction and uh i got out of school at three but the first showing was at noon and i cut my last three classes because i wanted to see the film print before it got any dirt wow. or hair or anything else I like that you were that geeky in, wow. in high school I was my dad taught me that trick he used to pull me out of school when there was a big movie opening because he wanted to see it when the film print was still fresh that's awesome it was awesome I actually just saw a movie and it was on film and there was all this grit and grizzle on it and I was like yeah you know it's film there's a cigarette burn right there were some really bad reel changes because like projectionists right. don't know how to do it anymore yeah um but I skipped class and I went and I saw this movie and it was because I was obsessed with Reservoir Dogs. I didn't know anything going into it. I had not seen a preview. And I honestly can tell you that watching that movie, I don't think that I would have the job that I have now. I don't think I would have had the career I had. I don't think I would have studied film at USC if I hadn't seen that movie. It blew my mind wow. in every single possible way. And I walked out of the theater. I paid another, I think it was like six bucks. That's how cheap movies were back then. Yeah. And I went and I saw it again. Wow. I mean, I was just, I was completely smitten. That's, That's amazing. We and picked the perfect guest. Apparently. <laughs> this podcast, yeah. Well, actually, really, you picked it. I, picked, I was like, right, I want to talk about Pulp Fiction. That's right. Uh, and by the way, so I went to school in Berkeley, and I went to film school at USC. So, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, oh, nice. yes, Steve. So we got a, we got a lot love going it. on here. All right. That's great. John, how'd you first come to the film? Well, I went to film school at UCLA. No, I'm joking. It's um, okay. We still love you. <laughs> uh, I, uh, uh, I'm a little bit older than Sasha, so I saw it when I was when I had tried my first trip through college to go to college, and I remember this film coming out. Um, I, I was a massive fan of Reservoir Dogs, um, so much so that I would get it on VHS and we would have viewings. Like I would have friends come over and watch it with me because I wanted them to see what this amazing film was. It is still, maybe aside from Kill Bill, my favorite film is Reservoir Dogs of Tarantino just because of everything that's attached to it. But I went to see it. It was at this place called University Mall Theaters 3 in Fairfax, Virginia. And I went and saw it right after my classes were done. Uh, and I was like blown away by the movie. I had to step out of the theater a couple of times because I couldn't handle the narrative switches. Mm. And I was trying to get them in my brain before I went back into the theater. I saw it every day for the next four days. Oh, like, that's I went, awesome. I went after classes every day because it was like four bucks to go because it was the university theater. Yeah. So it was cheaper. And the, I mean, the sound wasn't great. The seats were terrible. And I just remember being so blown away by this movie and challenged by this movie in a way that I hadn't been before. I guess because I hadn't seen a lot of Altman either with those multiple storyline things. But this was something that was constantly challenging your time narrative all the time. And you were like, wait, why is Travolta alive here when he just got killed here? What? Wait, Spoiler. They, yeah, all, you're right. Exactly. All it's, these things that were you know, happening. A thirty or twenty-three. Math's hard. So we're twenty-three-year-old cool. movie. I yeah. think people I think should have cool. seen it by now. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah. why are they listening if they don't? Yeah. Know? If you're listening to the cinephiles, so, you know there's it's all spoiled. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and and I remember walking. And I remember it, it has been a film that I I cannot watch all the time. But when I revisit it, it's almost 
like I'm revisiting it for the first time over again, and especially for this podcast, it happened again because living in LA, you start to see these things that you had, like you had no concept of when you were there in terms of locations and places. But the longer you live here, and the longer you drive around, and you go to different areas of the city, you see where they shot a lot of this, and that's part of the joy in rewatching the movie. And, yeah. and, totally. and it's such an LA movie, yeah, in a way that like. There are a lot of movies that are very Hollywoody and glitzy that are showing a certain vision of L.A. Yeah. But for the most of us who come to L.A. with no money and you're living in some crappy apartment mm-hmm. and you're, you know, this is what L.A. looks like. Yeah, and one last, one last thing I want to say, the reason I also wanted to see it is because I'm a massive Travolta fan since I was a child. In fact, that's how, when I changed my name at nine years old. I took John because of John Travolta's name. Oh, I, how, how could I have never well, known that? Yeah, I mean, because I, I didn't like what my parents named me. And what did I, they name you? I, that's something that only my girlfriends or ex-girlfriends or intimate people know. But like, really? they named me and I did not like John, my name. John, we share a podcast. What is more intimate <laughs> well, than this? People listening are... So it was, I changed it at nine years I'll old. I'll edit it out. Just say it. And I was in Virginia. Really? No. Okay. <laughs> no, don't trust him. Don't, <laughs> don't trust, trust him. him. Look at that. Because when we moved to a, a new city, I changed my name completely. When we moved to a new city, because I wanted to be, and my mom said Stephen, because she'd always wanted to name me Stephen, and I said John. It's a good name. A massive Travolta fan. <laughs> so this was his comeback. This was his comeback, mm-hmm. and because and I was so excited to see him coming back after the Look Who's Talking debacles, and to see him in something like this, I was like so excited to see Travolta again. You know, totally. that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so I saw it. Uh, I was in film school, living in LA. I'd been here about a year. Uh, I saw it in Westwood, and I just remember, like, once that ride starts, you know, it's. I mean, as I mean, you you've known me a while mm. as an intellectual guy. I can enjoy a movie without necessarily getting swept up in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I could just sure. be observing and going, yes, this is well made. Yes, the emotions are being felt here. You mm-hmm. know, like that kind of thing. And I, once Pulp Fiction started, I didn't know where I was. You know, I <laughs> right. just got so effect. lost within that film. Yeah. Um, and it is such a profound, I think, departure in film history. Like, what, there's before Pulp Fiction and there's after Pulp Fiction. Absolutely. In the same way, there's like before Star Wars and after Star mm-hmm. Wars. You know, just everything changes at, the, at that moment. And just like both of you, I was a huge Reservoir Dog fan. So I saw it opening night and still was just blown away mm-hmm. by it. Um, so first of all, the movie starts with an idea with, between, uh, Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery, who kind of maybe gets screwed in this process. Kind of, (laughs) kind of. He's a co-writer on it and suddenly he, all he has is a story by credit. I mean, there's so many things I feel like, so one of the things that I found out many, many, many years after watching it for the first time was that Roger Avery took scenes that were supposed to be in true romance and then put them into Pulp Fiction. And urban legend, although I've never heard this confirmed by Avery, is that it's the the great pocket watch scene. Yes. I mean, come on. Which I would assume, I mean, wouldn't you maybe see that with like, Maybe in a, like a Dennis Hopper moment from yeah, True Romance. Yeah, definitely like, talking to Christian. I could see that. Yeah. Um, so that supposedly comes from there. And also the scene with the big Ahuna burger and mm. like all that stuff with Marvin and Brett and blah, 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 blah. I don't know, though. As I watch it, I mean, if you were to pick out the scenes that you think Roger Avery wrote for, because I would assume it would be like the Honey Bunny stuff. But maybe I'm just being crazy. Yeah. I, I, I don't, you I can mean, make that correlation, sure. I don't know, because Quentin Tarantino's dialogue is so recognizable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 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 of course, it might just be some you know mental framing effect that because I know what Quentin, I think Quentin Tarantino sounds like, that I hear 
the watch, the honey bunny stuff, whatever. And I go, that sounds like Quentin Tarantino to me. Right. And maybe that's not the case. And it might also be that there, he wrote a scene with a watch and a guy and this story. And that was his idea. Right. And then the, and then the Tarantino ness came in, you know, and who, and, and this is the thing about any collaboration is sometimes it's really hard to figure out who contributed what, sure. you know, because y- you might've written that line, but you wouldn't have thought of writing that line until someone else said this thing. Mm-hmm. And if mm. you hadn't been in that circumstance, it never would have happened. And yeah. so it's really hard because I, I, I don't know, Mr. Tarantino, but um, this seems like a dick move. I mean, this seems horrible. <laughs> and, and I don't know. I can't decide how much credit he deserved or how much credit Roger Avery deserved. I know what my, uh, favorite theater teacher taught me is there was a moment where I was trying to decide whether I should take credit for this fight choreography in this play that I directed and my and I felt that I had really done it and I was working with this young guy who I was fencing with to help me come up with it and my theater teacher said you're the director you can never give away enough credit if the if, yeah. the, if the if the project succeeds you're going to get all the praise mm-hmm. and if it fails it's all your blame credit is a gift you get to give to people and i went you're right and i gave the other guy all the credit that guy today is a professional fight choreographer wow that's very cool yeah and 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 this is his first fight choreography and it felt and i it's funny because i still go like i kind of did a lot of that fight choreography Mm. but i feel good about it because he was right the play was my play yeah you know and and so i look at this moment of quentin tarantino of course we're at the end the movie's a big success going i think you just get story by did, did, they get, did it happen after the movie was released? Yeah, they agreed that they would have co-writing credit and right? that Tarantino would have directing credit. And then right, like as they're doing all like the whirlwind press the and right around Cannes. And, yeah. yeah, and as they realize they what it's going to be credits? and they change the credits from co-written by to story by co-credit and written by and directed by Tarantino. So here's the thing, because I think about that a lot and I, I love what your teacher said. That's something I'm totally going to, I'm going to carry that with yeah, me yeah. for the rest of my life. But... When I look at what Roger Avery has been able to do, because like you said, relationships and collaborations are a really tough bag. I think you can also see it when directors get married to each other. Like Miranda July has had such a profound impact on Mike Mills. Sophia Coppola's work has totally changed since she got like divorced from Spike Jones. Exactly. When I look at Roger Avery, once that Tarantino connection went away, it definitely like nobody's you know, dying to see killing Zoe again, right, you know, right. I think that what you're saying is probably he did do a lot of the work and it is a very Tarantino film. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to make the crossover and like, this is my right. hallmark. This is my trademark. This is my calling card. And damn, if it isn't one of the greatest calling cards of all time. Well, this may be sacrilege to say, but you could even look at Stanley Donnan and Gene Kelly. Like, yes, they worked oh. together on the singing in the rain and on the town, but Donnan went on and had these fantastic films, but yeah. no one's dying to see Hello, Dolly, or Xanadu again, which is what Kelly directed solo. <laughs> and so, you know, these I are these to differ. <laughs> Wally is dying to see Hello, Dolly over <laughs> and over and over again. Well, just that one. It's right. Oh, God. Um, that film. I love that film. <laughs> it's a great yeah. film. It makes um, me cry every time. Well, it's yeah. all, again, you cannot separate out yeah. collaborations. What we can know is that we can see Quentin Tarantino's <laughs> career, and we can go... I think this is his movie. Yeah. You know, I don't know what Roger Avery contributed mm-hmm. and maybe it's a lot, but it's still a Tarantino film. Right. 100%. Yeah. Uh, so because of the success of Reservoir Dogs, uh, Miramax, who's just is really the beginning of Miramax and Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein goes, I'm interested in the script. A lot of people, I think it had been at, um, TriStar. Was it TriStar? It was at TriStar mm. and TriStar called it too demented. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which 
I think is a compliment. <laughs> I, I agree. Absolutely. <laughs> but but you can understand them not wanting to get into this kind of business sure. at that time. Sure. Because there's nothing like this. Yeah. But also, I mean, it really is. I think, like, we're talking about putting flags in the ground. Yeah. This is where Harvey Weinstein put a flag in the ground no and was like, all right, I got all this money from Disney. I'm going to put $8.5 million yeah. into this because this is what I believe in. This is the kind of filmmaking that I'm going to champion. And that made his career just as much as it made anybody else's. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And made a whole bunch of other movies that were able to happen mm-hmm. because of this that probably wouldn't have happened without Pulp Fiction. I still think Pulp Fiction is the crown jewel of the independent movement of the 90s. I think it is the crown jewel. It is the one that is the Nate. It is what everything, the touchstone, I'm sorry, the touchstone. It is the touchstone from which everything stems from. You know, this one showed what, what you could do with independent filmmaking. So many people came and tried to copy it and then, but he still endures. Of all the independent filmmakers, yeah. Tarantino is still the king of them from that time in the 90s, in my I, opinion. I totally agree, yeah. and to the point where he kind of transcends independent filmmaking. Absolutely. But I, still, you know, his films feel that way. Even something like Eightful Eight has that vibe to it. They're his movies. Yeah. I was watching Death Proof again. They were showing the Grindhouse whole combination last night on Stars, Nice. Or one of those, or maybe Encore, and I sat and watched all three hours because I absolutely loved uh, the entire Grindhouse combination. Yeah. I don't like when they separate the movies in their hour and a half each. I like when they're combined with the trailers. That was, I went and, see that, I went and saw that three times in the theaters because Tarantino... He understands that type of movie, that type of vibe, and he brings that vibe to his movies, that independent film, which is which is the homage to the seventies stuff, which is where that genesis is, you know, from rather. There's no question about it. Am I off the rails? I'm sorry. No, I'm you're on the rails. No, I'm agreeing with you so much. I had okay. just had nothing to add. <laughs> okay. I was, all I was thinking about was that was perfect. Now I okay. have to figure out how to change the subject. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Just, <laughs> which, is, which is hard sometimes. Just me. I'm just going on And maybe you'll hear this and maybe I'll edit it out. <laughs> oh, no. no <laughs> Don't ever, edit it out. All right. I promise you it won't be edited Let's be, out. Let this be the first unredacted episode. No, it's never going to happen. <laughs> I'm too much of a control freak. Everything has to be perfect. Fair enough. Um, so somewhere in this time, after Reservoir Dogs, Tarantino gets to go talk to one of his heroes, which is John Travolta. Mm. And from the story I've heard, they basically talk all night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at the end of which, he offers him the fantastic part of the lead in Dust Till Dawn. <laughs> really? I have really. not heard this story. Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. yeah. And Tarantino, this is according to Tarantino. I saw an interview with him. And Tarantino heard this is like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't I don't like vampires. That doesn't sound fun at all. And he had also been talking about this other movie that he had Michael Madsen to play the lead in. Right. And uh he, yeah. and and, Tar- and, and uh, Travolta's going, man, that one sounds kind of interesting. And fortunately for all of us, except possibly for Michael Madsen, Tombstone comes up. And so Madsen goes off to play oh. in Tombstone and turns down Pulp Fiction. No, no. White Earp? White Earp. White Earp. He, yes. He's White Earp. Sorry, the not Tombstone. Lawrence Kasdan one. Yeah, yeah he plays, Black Kasdan one. I'm sorry. Yeah, which is such a weird casting to put him as Morgan Earp. Yeah, for and, a second, I thought maybe he played the Val Kilmer part in Tombstone. And I was like, did I not know that that sorry, was originally his sorry. part? And then Val Kilmer swept in. <laughs> Whoa. All right. That would be a, quite a battle. Madsen versus Kilmer. Especially now. Yeah. Just, so that's like a sumo wrestling match. <laughs> Stop it. 
Stop it, you. Oh, I'm sorry. He's lost weight. I'm sorry. The Who? throat cancer Who? has made him lose weight. Kilmer. He's not heavy anymore. Oh, I yeah. thought. All right, fine. Sure, you got to bring cancer into it. I know. That cancer trumps everything. He's just like. (laughs) So so Madsen is out. Yeah. And Travolta raises his hand, and that's how John Travolta ends up in this movie. Well, that's 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 great because the Vague Vague is the last name of the character, and that's his name in Reservoir Dog. So I wonder if he. Because there's always been those rumors that Tarantino had written a Vega Brothers movie, which would have been. Everything. I mean, everything. They can at that still time. happen. They're both still alive. No, but their characters are both dead. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it could be a prequel of a. But it's so like a, cast it's a, the sixty-five. No, they're going to CGI it. They'll CGI it. <laughs> it'll be animated. It'll be. It'll be them, but it'll all be mocap. It'll I be like think... Harold and Lauren. Oh, that's so true. Are you listening, Quentin? Because oh, I think we got something here for oh, you. Yeah. Well, no, they can do a rewrite. Maybe they're they're in heaven. They come back down. Well, the thing about the Tarantino thing yeah. and the Travolta thing and all of the people whose careers he's been able to yeah, resurrect right. like do you think anybody would have known about pam greer mm. in like the late 90s early 2000s well i knew about it. but i think i'm saying like I took younger a class generations in black exploitation and kung fu films when right. i was at usc hey well wow. let's get black dynamite made as a netflix show because i feel oh. like they totally screwed up uh the get down so yeah. let's do a black right. dynamite okay but there are so many actors that really have had reconnaissances because of Travolta (laughs) and because of what... That is a fantastic word. Right. It's a reconnaissance thanks to the Travolta, Tarantino, like that sort of symbiosis and what came out of it because I love Travolta from Welcome Back, Cotter. Mm -hmm. Me too. And I grew up, I only owned, my parents made laser discs when I was a kid. They made made laser discs? Cutting edge. They produced laser discs. That's awesome. Yeah. So we had a laser disc player in our house and we only owned six movies and one of the movies was Saturday Night Fever. Yes. So I watched Saturday Night Night Fever I mean, innumerable times. So I love Travolta. And when he did go through the look who's talking period Mm -hmm. and just sort of disappeared to see him in this part and Samuel L. Jackson, would Samuel L. Jackson have the career he has if it weren't for what Tarantino Tarantino has done? I mean, there are people whose entire like gold yellow brick roads have been paved by what Tarantino has written for them. Did you know? And I just found out that Samuel L. Jackson auditioned for the part auditioned for Reservoir Dogs for the other cop teaching Tim Roth. Oh, oh. that makes sense. And didn't get the part. Oh, he's and, being saved for something better. Well, yeah. and, and he goes to Sundance, sees Reservoir Dogs at Sundance, sees Tarantino. Tarantino rushes up to him, remembers him, and said, the first thing he asks is, what do you think about the guy who got your part? <gasps> oh, wow. Just, oh. Standard Tarantino. It sounds perfectly correct. Whoa. <laughs> it's a, kind of a rough place to start. <laughs> but then the next thing he says is, I'm writing this other part for you. Yeah. That's wow. incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So he had Samuel Jackson in mind from the beginning. Uh, As apparently. well, he should. And there's no question, this makes his career. Yeah. No question. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this is such a tour de force for him. Well, I mean, I am, first of all, I'm a Jew. But second of all, do you think I, I'm not somebody who could ever quote a Bible verse? But I can quote. You could quote yeah. Ezekiel twenty five seventeen. Come on, I'm not going to do it here because it would just not do the justice that Sam deserves. Please. But come on. But Wait, I, Kevin, is this a supplementary uh, release in the podcast? <laughs> just a little standalone. Standalone extra. Yeah. What's fascinating about this is th- there is no religion in this film. There are no cops. It's all criminals. 
And there is no, it's nihilistic type of film because even he undercuts the religious thing at the end when he says, that's something I just used to say because I thought it was badass to say. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say he's religious. And so the whole Well, he film, does spend a lot of time talking about an act of God. Right. Eventually, right? Divine that's, intervention. That's his journey. Yeah. But I mean, the film itself, through, through most of the film, is nihilistic. Everyone is kind of stemming off Marcellus Wallace. Everyone is doing their own thing, with their own code. Bruce Willis kills a guy in a boxing ring and has no... Uh, sorrow about it in the car people these are these are not like good people these are people who have varying degrees of their of their lives to function within but they're not necessarily good people and i think that was fascinating watching this now Mm. at this age watching it again like how devoid of a police presence and how devoid of religion this film actually well and and basic morality yeah basically until the end right like no good doing something good is Rarely a motivation, with a couple of really big exceptions. Exactly. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. What are the exceptions? Stay tuned. Okay. <laughs> so uh, we we get our cast together: Eric Stoltz, Uma Thurman, and Bruce Willis. Of course, is the is the mm-hmm. name person that helps us raise a budget. Um, and Bruce had not been off of a few good years at this point. <laughs> yeah. And then he's probably gonna he, he tends to go through that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But this is a film you can say that for, right, Stephen? This is what's great. You brought up the cat. Eric Stoltz had kind of fallen off the map. Sure. Rosanna Arquette had fallen. These all yeah. these eighties stars yeah. had fallen off the map. Mm-hmm. And here comes Tarantino stripping them of their eighties bullshit and going in touch and finding their true essence as actors. Eric Stoltz was always out of the mainstream. They fired him off back to the future. Rosanna Arquette was always an uncomfortable mainstream. Uh, ingenue in the 80s so Desperately Seeking Susan is actually a very irreverent subversive film if you watch I don't think I've seen that since the 80s what oh Oh, you gotta rewatch it it's really enjoyable one of my favorite quiet 80s films was a film she did with Aiden Quinn called Nobody's Fool oh sure yeah it it goes against the convention of romantic comedy and so he finds these people like these little diamonds in the rough and and brings them into a script like this to really showcase their acting abilities and their grittiness their dirt and I thought that was so great you know I think I think part of it is is that the way I was just thinking as you were talking is that time yeah. and culture move on. Yes. And Tarantino doesn't. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is that Tarantino goes, I saw that thing when I was 15 or 12 or 13 and it was great yeah. and it's still great and let me show you why it's great. Yes. Is that he isn't interested. Hollywood is always interested in the next thing. Mm-hmm. What is the thing that the kids like today? Right, right, right. And if they liked it today, they will not like it tomorrow. And Tarantino's like, this thing I liked when I was a kid, John Travolta or whatever, yeah, yeah. or these movies, they're great. And I will always think they're great, and I will show you how they're mm-hmm. great. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. And also, I feel like that's what his films are, too. I mean, that's why we can sit here and talk about a movie that is 23 years old yeah. and say, no, 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 because this changed everything. But also, you can look to all the influences. Yes. Like the taxi cab ride that Bruce Willis yeah. takes. There are so many throwbacks, like with the rear projection. There's yes. so many like yep. coloration techniques that he uses. There's so yes. many things where you can see like Hitchcock. You can see, like you said, uh, Altman. You can see yep. a million different things you can see every influence and yet it's all 100% his own take on it but it is because he's like you don't remember why this thing was great but I do and I will show you I love that you I've never been able to put my finger on that that was so fantastic I love it Steve oh good well and this is the thing that we talked about in Reservoir Dogs when we did that podcast is that and I highly recommend you go back and listen to it uh, is that Tarantino is creating the platonic ideal of movies from the past that are even better than what yes. they actually were. Because yes. if you watch those 70s films, and I've watched a lot of them, mm-hmm. a lot of them are pretty terrible. Mm. You know, they're enjoyable and campy, 
but but they don't have a great filmmaker and a great writer like Quentin Tarantino at the helm. Mm. You know, that his vision of what those movies were, like you look at Kill Bill and you compare that to your average Kung Fu revenge film from 1973 and Kill Bill blows it away in terms of technique and filmmaking and thought Mm -hmm. and creativity. Um, But it also captures an essence of those films and brings it up to this huge level. And the other thing about Tarantino that's always interesting to me is I don't think you ever forget you're watching a movie is that Tarantino will continue to remind you in ways oh, yeah. that this is a film. Sort you know? of like, it's like La La Land in that it exactly. is a tip of the hat to how much yeah. he loves the filmmaking process yeah. by showing you. I mean, one of the things that is so perfect in this, this was actually one of the moments where I, I remember my brain just exploding, is when they pull up to Jack Rabbit Slims yeah. and Uma Thurman draws the rectangle and then it evaporates. Yep. Yes. That me too. I had the same experience when I saw it. Yeah. And I still every time yeah. I see it, I'm just like, oh come on. It does bother me though now that she says don't be a square and, and she, she draws, draws a rectangle. rectangle. Yeah, that occurred to me for the first time ever. Like it never bothered me before. And then this first time I was like, wait, that's a fucking rectangle. And I was like, oh, how could that never occur to me? Damn but it. It's so cool. That yeah. was like the epitome of, but like you're saying, he's so aware of yes, you're watching a movie, this is mm. filmmaking. And also these are techniques that I loved, and these are visuals that I can recognize. That's yeah. why when you can see like really shoddy rear screen projection, yeah. it actually gets me kind of hyped. It's great. Of it was yeah. awesome. Because it doesn't have pretension to it. It's not trying to fool no. you. Yeah. Well, and the thing too, and again, this came up in Reservoir Dogs, is the old school philosophy of how to learn to write was go out and live life. You know, go the Ernest Hemingway, go fight bulls and get in the boxing ring and sail. And Quentin Tarantino learned and how drink. to and drink. He forgot and drink. Well, and drink. That's the Hemingway <laughs> that philosophy. Drink. Tarantino, who might have done that part, or actually probably smoke more weed. <laughs> yes. Um, his philosophy was watch movies. Yeah. yeah. He didn't go out and live life. So his language, his vocabulary is the vocabulary of movies. Mm-hmm. And his movies are movies about movies mm-hmm. on a yeah. fundamental level. Yeah. Well, that's why all the totems throughout this whole film are pop culture totems. Absolutely. Every place they go, every place, everything they talk about is pop culture totem. The fawns, uh, the pigs, the, when they go to, uh, they go to Jackrabbit Slims. Like, these are all, all pop culture. This is yeah. all they have as tent poles in their lives well, and, from and, which and to base and their Jules, philosophy they have to, It's on. time for them to get into character. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's character all about right. movies yeah. and roles. All, yeah. So let's get into this movie. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we start off, and I love, one of the things that's very small on a filmmaking level is uh, most movies fade in. Yes. This movie starts on a hard cut. Yeah. And it's that's such it's a really small choice, but it sets the style in such a strong way. And we're just in the middle of this conversation. Yeah. yeah with Honey Bunny and Pumpkin. Well, he lays the groundwork with the definition. And right. then boom. And yeah. I think that's perfect. I think you're right. Exactly. Because it lets you know, this is what you're going to watch. It's pulpy. Don't be trying to think and this is some kind of masterpiece or this is some kind of Citizen Kane. This is going to be a pulpy film. We're going to go right into it and it's going to be dirty. Let's yeah. go. But also yeah. what we don't know at the time and don't know maybe even on upon first viewing until yeah. the shooting, like until Bruce Willis shoots Vince Vega, is that you are also not watching something that is linear. Right. And yes. by having that hard cut, it's basically like his way, like you said, of tipping the hat to the editing process and being mm. like we're in the middle of something and you're going to get the rest of this later yeah. which is very right. cool forget it it's too risky i'm through doing that shit you always say that the same thing every time i'm through never again too dangerous i know that's what i always say i'm always right too but you forget about it in a day or two yeah well the days of me forgetting are over the days of me remembering i've just begun you know when you go on like this what you sound like you sound like a sensible fucking man that's you what i sound like, like. Yeah, I'll take that because you're never going to have to hear it again. Since I'm never going to do it again, you're never going to have to hear me quack. I'm never going to do it again. After tonight. 
and you get that sparkling, great Quentin Tarantino dialogue. Yeah. And one of the things I noticed this time watching it is there's so many ideas. It's not mm-hmm. just that the rhythm of his dialogue is great. It's not just the use of language. It's not just the use of profanity or slang. But it's also that the things he's talking about, like we're having this really interesting conversation about robbing banks versus robbing liquor stores mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what that's all about. I bet you could cut down on the hero factor in a place like this. Correct. Same as banks, these places are insured. Manager, you don't give a fuck. You're just trying to get you out the door before you start plugging the diners. Waitresses, fucking forget it. No way they're taking a bullet for the register. Busboys, some wetback, getting paid $1.50 an hour. Really give a fuck you're stealing from the owner? Customers sitting there with food in their mouths, they don't know what's going on. One minute they're having a Denver omelette, next minute someone's sticking a gun in their face. See, I got the idea. The last liquor store we stuck up, remember? Mm. All the customers kept coming in. Yeah. You got the idea, taking their wallets. Mm-hmm. Now that was a good idea. Thank you. Made more from the wallets than we did from the register. Yes, we did. A lot of people come to restaurants. A lot of wallets. Pretty smart, huh? Pretty smart. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. And you're instantly in, and you're with, as your two robbers, casting that is completely not what you would expect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These are interesting characters. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God. That's another person. Like, Tim Rothman, yeah. his career, thanks to what Tarantino has written for him, is just so incredible. But then at the end of that scene, too, I mean, you're talking about, like, build, build, mm-hmm. build. There's You feel like you're going to get another sort of Reservoir Dogsy moment right. where it's going to be lots and lots of talking, and then there's eventually going to be something that goes on, but you expect, like, that slow-mo walkout right. moment. And yeah. instead, you get Amanda Plummer jumping up, screaming at everyone. <laughs> And then the music kicks in, and the music, the fact that he chose not to score the film, but rather just use surf music and R&B and songs that are now iconic, but at the time very few people knew... I mean, that, the visceral reaction to watching that in a theater is just, you are dropped into this world and oh, you yeah. are kickstarted for the next two and a half hours. And I had never known that this movie was two and a half hours long. Yeah. yeah. 
Because it never feels that right, way. Right. It feels so like intense and pounding and quick because Constantly. the dialogue is so smart too. Mm-hmm. That moment of Amanda Plummer jumping up. First oh, of all, so unexpected because you're having this conversation. Then it's like, oh, we're actually going to rob this place? Yeah. This yeah, yeah, yeah. doesn't seem like a good plan. <laughs> and then the voice that comes out of her mm-hmm. is so crazy. It's so good. And yeah. one of the fascinating things, I'm really fascinated by the choice. And this is the great Sally Menke was the editor who passed away a few years ago very sadly is that the choice to freeze frame half a second mm-hmm. before her line finishes mm-hmm. is really weird and there's some about it that propels you as you say to that pause we go into this grungy surf guitar and that yeah, dick dale it tells you something about yeah. what this movie's going to be it mm-hmm. drives you forward i wore out three cassettes of this soundtrack wow. during that time because i played it all the time yeah. because jungle boogie and that yeah. Dick Dale opening number. Yeah. Uh, and then Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon. Right. Oh, by yeah. Urge Overkill. The Urge Overkill. Yeah. All these songs were just, they became the soundtrack of my 20s in the, in the 90s. So to me, this was like everything, you know. And I love the fact that they, I love the camera that he does at the beginning. The camera work he does at the beginning. You're there with them. Then when they jump up, it's like you've been knocked down. Yeah. And you're looking at them like, and you're like, oh, shit. Here we go. Yeah. Like, you know, and Amanda Plummer, once again, one of these kind of out of the mainstream type of actresses. Right. She was Robert Williams's love, utopian love in in, in Fisher King. But yeah. then she shows up in So I Married an Expert. So she has this ability to kind of run the spec, run the gamut of genres. But in this, she's so it's crazy. unsettling and nuts, but not nuts in a typical way that you would discount someone. Nuts in a way that is very desperate and vulnerable and attractive and interesting. And so you go with her. And when she walks, like when we go to the end, when she's walking with their head on your shoulder like it's such a perfect thing because these are two lost souls trying to find some kind of meaning in their world some kind of existence and they connect with each other but they can't like they don't know where the next meal's coming from so they come up with this crazy shit this is a crazy situation we we we're we met these people we see them behave in a completely unexpected manner they're right in the middle of this robbery which looks honestly like a terrible terrible idea (laughs) we're really wondering what the hell is going to happen with this? Yeah. See some credits, and then we don't see them again. Yes, right. I mean later. that's the the because all you spend your time trying to figure out how to do as a filmmaker is get the audience interested, <laughs> and once you get the audience interested, you stick with what they're interested in. And Tarantino goes, "Oh, you're interested in that? Eh. Yeah. Let me let me have a couple of guys talking <laughs> let's talk about a Royale with cheese. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's get into the Royale with cheese. Oh. But you know what the funny thing about Europe is what? It's a little differences. I mean, they got the same shit over there that they got here, but it's just, just there, it's a little different. Example. All right, well, you can walk into a movie theater in Amsterdam and buy a beer. And I don't mean just like a little paper cup, I'm talking about a glass of beer. And in Paris, you can buy a beer at McDonald's. And you know what they call a, a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? Oh, man, they got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the fuck a quarter pounder is. And what do they call it? They call it the uh, Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. What do they call a Big Mac? Big Mac's a Big Mac, but they call it Le Big Mac. Le Big Mac. <laughs> what do they call a Whopper? I don't know. I didn't go on a Burger King. This is the most famous scene in the movie. It was They, they played this everywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not my favorite Tarantino dialogue. It's wow. It's not mine either. Yeah. I mean, uh, I appreciate movie, it. In the movie, it's not my favorite dialogue. It's much better. The, the stuff of, I mean, obviously you couldn't put on, on you know, Siskel and Ebert the scene about, you know, whether or not a foot massage is similar to cunnilingus. <laughs> that probably wouldn't play. But that's <clears throat> BS. If you want to talk about total Tarantino that's moment, full Tarantino. that is full frontal Tarantino. <laughs> Literally full frontal. Or full footal. Yeah, I don't know. full footal. Well, are we, are we, are we uh, saying the conversation from the car into where they walk up to the door right before they go in the door 
Because that is in some of my car. favorite no, 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 dialogue. All, all I'm saying is just in the car. The clip okay, that was okay. shown yeah. over and over again yeah, 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 is the Royale with cheese. Yeah, right, that's right. the like you, that would probably because it is the only one that maybe is maybe it's just clean, like, totally clean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but the stuff about Amsterdam is great. I mean, the, this is yeah, just yeah. great. Yeah. Tarantino dialogue right yeah and he writes and it like no one else th- they're sort of on the way to this thing and you don't know you're just on a journey yeah. and also that's Tarantino setting you up for what this movie is going to be I'm not telling you where we're going I'm not telling you what we're doing I'm not giving you have, are not allowed are. to have any expectations right. right you are just going to go and now you're going to have this experience and that I think is so smart and then we go into what we go into with them. And so one, one, like, one thing before we walk into yeah. that room is, is the other thing is we plant this really important piece of exposition, yeah. which is that there's this guy, Marcellus Wallace. He has a wife named Mia. Yeah. Uh, Vince, John Travolta is going to be taking her, out. taking her out one night. And that Marcellus Wallace may or may not have thrown this guy, Antoine, out of a window because of a Tony Rocky size. Horror, man. Tony Rocky Horror. <laughs> so, I mean, you can't be going another... Uh, listen, you don't be giving another woman's... Uh, you know, another uh, man's woman a foot massage. massage. What if she has like a cramp? <laughs> no. Nope. Just laying your hands in a familiar way on Marcellus' new wife. I mean, is it as bad as eating her pussy out? No. It's the same fucking ball pump. Whoa, 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 whoa. Stop right there. I mean, eating a bitch out and giving a bitch a foot massage ain't eating the same fucking thing. It's not. It's the same ballpark. Ain't no fucking ballpark, neither. Now, look, maybe your method of massage differs from mine. But, you know, touching his wife's feet and sticking your tongue in the holiest of holies ain't the same fucking ballpark. It ain't the same league. It ain't even the same fucking sport. Look, foot massages don't mean shit. Have you ever given a foot massage? <laughs> Don't be telling me about foot massages. I'm the foot fucking master. You giving a lot of them? Shit, yeah. Got my technique down and everything. I don't be tickling or nothing. Would you give a guy a foot massage? Fuck you. That's dudes. That's two dudes sure. absolutely having a conversation absolutely. about okay, that kind but of let's, shit. Let's actually talk about it. Let's talk okay. about a foot massage. So... Would you be cool with another man giving your woman a foot massage? Uh, sure. I, no John Roca says, what? fuck no. What do you mean, yeah. Steve? Yeah. Sure. What? Really? Well, well, first of all, so I've watched, well, in the room, many guys. Creepy. Yeah, well. <laughs> wait, wait, many you know, guys, theater what? people give, give my wife a massage or. What? Fuck yeah, Why? No. Sure. She, she likes a massage. Wow. What? Yeah. I'm not that jealous. But Clearly. okay, but here's the thing: back massage or foot massage? So, like a neck rub, or like I'm taking your shoe off. I can smell your cheese toes, and I'm licking your bunions. <laughs> I, I know this is going to sound strange. I think that's unlikely to happen. Um, I I actually trust my wife, so I, I'm not. No, wait, that no, wait a second. It. Wait a second. Wait a second. It's got nothing to do with trust. Now it's got yeah. nothing to do with trust. It's a matter of like. But I I understand how it's you see it. It's very intimate. Yes, I mean, yeah, I, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, you're sharing so something. when I'm when I was a kid, my parents would hold my feet it was very comforting to me uh, yeah. and i like it still and i make my husband do it but he doesn't have to rub he's just a hold sure but he doesn't do it right he holds them too hard <laughs> so when my parents are around to him about this? i have i'm always like that hurts and then he's like well, just get them off it and he like shuts my feet off so when my parents are around i'm like this is how you do it and my mom will do it or my dad will do it and then i'll see him getting sort of jealous because why are you touching my wife's feet wait wow. have you had your parents hold his feet i should that's smart. how is he gonna learn that's how to so properly right. hold your feet that's You're smart. so right oh steve <laughs> see this, this is, is why i'm here educational <laughs> um i i do understand what you're saying i do understand the intention and of why is this guy doing this thing yeah but you know i've been married for almost 20 years i trust karen i 
That's I, fair. I'm not that stressed out about this. Yeah. Well, we also, you know? I mean, Tony Rocky Horror, he might have, the name sounds intense, but right. he might have been a good looking dude before he hit the ground. He was a big dude. He was a big man. He's a Samoan. I wouldn't say he was fat. Uh, the, uh, the Rock. <laughs> Jason Mo- what if he was Jason Momoa? What if he looked like yeah. Jason Momoa? Or The Rock. I, yeah, look, or The Rock. Look, clearly. Or Moa. Clearly, Moana. as we'll get Moana. into it, Mia is uh, a complicated. Trouble. Yeah, she's trouble. Uh, I mean, watching it this time. I was like, she's a bad person. Wait a second! I yeah. used to love her as a character, but then when I well, watched this, I'm like, great you character. are dangerous. You are dangerous for so many fucking reasons. All right, yeah. So, so before we jump too far ahead of ourselves, we have now established <laughs> what is going to be an important plot point. And while we're yes. talking about that, what we're not talking about is that we're about to walk into a room yeah. where apparently we're going to have to kill some people with another one of these yes. actors from the '80s that had kind of fallen off. Frank Whaley, Frank who Whaley. had had his opportunities in the '80s, mm-hmm. he was in The Doors, Opportunity Knocks, like all these yeah. things. Things, but he'd kind of fallen off and here he is in this small little part but so so engaging so interesting to watch and so perfectly scared of everything that's happening and around the big him. kahuna burger which of course they, yes. there's two things in this movie that were totally made up big kahuna burgers and right. red apple cigarettes right. both of which i like i when i came to la i was like where is big kahuna burger <laughs> i must have a big kahuna burger but the other thing that they do in the scene is something we're talking about how he tips the hat to yeah. filmmaking i would not know the word MacGuffin. Or oh, what right. a MacGuffin mm. is, if it were not for the briefcase. How funny. The briefcase with the golden light that pours out, yeah. which they recreated in Atlanta this last season when they went to the chicken mm. shop and oh, he opens yeah. up the wet wings, the lemon pepper wet wings. And I was like, oh my God, it's the it's the Tarantino wet wings. But that, <laughs> but nobody, I don't think people know necessarily how much they're actually learning about film yeah. when they watch a Tarantino sure. movie. But that is like a straight up like, hey kids. What to the lesson of the day is MacGuffin. <laughs> and can you can you describe for our users what a MacGuffin a is? A MacGuffin is the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. It's a narrative device that uh, propels whatever is going on, but is never seen and is never like actually described. So it's something that all of the characters are pursuing, but we never really find out what it necessarily is. And yeah. that is, in this case, the briefcase. Yeah, yeah. It comes, What's in I, the briefcase? I think the origin is from Hitchcock. Yeah, is where the term first comes from. And it, to me, like a MacGuffin is a great lesson for writers because you're spending so much time trying to figure out your plot and you know what it's not actually that important Mm. your Mm. characters want to get a thing but what makes your film interesting is all the stuff that happens along the way and who the characters are and how they behave and why they're doing what they're doing in terms of the thing they want to get it doesn't really matter it doesn't matter if you're going to try to steal the Mona Lisa or steal Rob Fort Knox or it doesn't matter which one of those things it is it matters well, how are they going to do that? Then? How do they do it? Yeah, that's yeah. what's fun. Well, it's a, and it's it's such fun to watch that scene because the the code is six six six, and then when he opens it, it's this gold light, and you never find out what it is. And of course, it's always been legend afterwards that it was Marcellus' soul or some 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 kind of treasure that they had found or something. But sure. that's that's the great narrative that pushes you through the films. Like, what is this whole thing? What's the big deal? Because well, he killed like everyone in that room. Well, and to me, this is the I'm watching a movie because. Yeah. It, it, there clearly is nothing that it can be. Right. You know what I mean? There why is, do they have it? Why do these well, well, And the answer is have they it. have it because that's how we're going to have a movie. Right. Because this is Tarantino. It's like, look, we're, I want to have a movie where these guys are after something. Yeah. Here's a, here it is. You can't ever get to the bottom. There is no answer right. to it. I, yeah. That's a good point. I, I don't know t- Tarantino, but if I'm sure that, and I'm sure he'll never answer the question. Right. But I'm also sure, like, there's no answer. Yeah. I honestly don't want to know. Because nothing would be satisfied. Yeah. Nothing would satisfy me or be satisfying. There is, it is just the golden light. Yep. And, what, and my brain can fill in what it needs to be. And the fact that Vincent could look at it 
and not be overwhelmed by it unnecessarily lets me know it's something that that is human based but right. not necessarily you know god based and so i like that that's enough for me that's enough for me i don't need more than that. i also like the way Tar- travolta smokes the cigarette yeah. while yeah. he's opening it like there's just it just dangles from his mouth yeah. and this like puff of smoke comes out and it's illuminated by the light his mannerisms throughout god, this movie everything. are great yeah all these little the way yep. he walks the sh- you know the way he shrugs mm-hmm. his shoulders that has hair coming down on his face all those little things are just so odd this is Vinny Bobrino 20 years later <laughs> <laughs> this is my belief this is Vinny Bobrino 20 years later slightly smarter than Vinny Bobrino because there were there were patterns in his speech and his delivery that was very Vinnie Barbarino in certain moments and it's it's like in my mind I'm like this is him 20 years later he, he's no longer leader sweat hog he's had some tough situations he's doing what he's doing <laughs> I don't want to talk about what happened to Horshack right. or, or, or Epstein's mother so one, yeah. of the th- <clears throat> one of the things that's interesting there's always things in this movie that I forget and I have hmm. a pretty good memory for plot yeah and it and I, when we're in that room with Frank Whaley, I, in watching this last time, I'm like, wait, I don't remember exactly how this goes down. <laughs> yeah. You know, because it's still surprising. Like, and the realization, like, oh, no, they really are just here to kill these people. Yep. And kind of I go, like, why do we even need to talk to them? You know, and yet they do because Sam Jackson needs to talk. Because Sam Jackson needs to give one of the best speeches <laughs> in film history. That's why it needs to happen. Yeah. You read the Bible, Greg. Yes. Oh, there's this passage I got memorized. Sort of fits this occasion. Ezekiel 25, 17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness. For he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children and i will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers and you will know my name is the lord when i lay my vengeance upon thee The intensity and the power of what he does and the manipulation of the situation and the the manipulation of these young guys' emotions. Like, oh, maybe we're going to be okay. Oh, maybe we're not. Oh, is this threatening? Are they being friendly? Are they bad? And then when he goes into the, Mm. the Bible verse... That is some powerful, powerful acting. Yeah. There is, in that scene alone, how many iconic quotes? At least two. Look right. at the big brain on Brett yeah. and the speech that we right. now all know. But I'm sure like it's just so many things that that's why that yeah. has to happen. Also, you can't just kill them. Then they're kind of jerks. But it's right. incredible character revelations as you're going right. through. Like you get to know exactly who these guys are and everything that we didn't know in the car. Yeah. We now know watching them do their work. And these guys are naturally underdogs from the beginning. So you kind of root for them a little bit because you're right. What you say, Steve, like you hope they get Oh, maybe they'll be all right. Maybe they'll be okay. Frank is so lost. He is so lost all of a sudden. And that guy, he tells that guy, no, no, don't get up. And yeah. then he shoots him. Like, yeah. And later he shoots him. Oh, did I break your car? In a shocking way. Yeah, in a very shocking yeah. way. And they break your car. And then he's after this guy and he's pushing Frank to his limits with what? Like, what? What? And then shoots Frank for saying what? It's just a constant. You know, uh, slow burn to the, the final death of that of everybody in that room, except well, for Phil Lamar, of course. And there is a moment with the turn into camera 
from uh, Sam Jackson. Yeah. That is so great. In extreme close up. In extreme close up. <laughs> it's just with the Jerry Curl. Oh, yeah. That glorious Jerry Curl. Beautiful. It is. And this, by the way, also is the beginning of, man, Sam Jackson is always going to have some hair. He's always going to have an outfit. Like, he, he always yeah. wants, he, and, and apparently the, the way the Jerry Curl happened was they sent the, you know, hair person to the, to go get a big, he wanted a big fro, like a 70s fro. Oh, yeah. And the guy came back with the Jerry Curl, apparently, didn't know the difference and Quentin Tarantino's mad and Sam Jackson says no that's that's what it is that is so much better if it had been a fro that would have been lame that Jerry curl yeah. is where it's at that's Sam Jackson's glow. got some style got mm-hmm. that soul glow man. he does have the soul glow <laughs> so alright where do we go next well obviously we're gonna go to Vince Vega and Marcellus Wallace's yes. wife yes oh boy which we start <clears throat> with a single on Bruce Willis for a really, really long time. Oh, mm-hmm. While we listen to The Great Thing Rings. Yes. Can I say, during the Super Bowl, I was so sad. Because I'm like, what happened, bro? Ving Rames was introducing the teams. Yes. What happened to his career? Explain it to me. What I love Ving Rames. Happened? Can I tell you why? Yes. Yeah. African American actors. It is a tough situation. You grab what you can get. You get what you do. You do. You look at Charles S. Dutton. Charles S. Dutton was fantastic. I love Charles. Where S. the Dutton. fuck did Charles S. Dutton go? It's just how it goes sometimes with African American actors. They have a great amount of time, and some can make that and keep going like Samuel L. Jackson, and some can't. Ving is doing voiceover for Arby's. He's doing. He does yeah. ADT commercials. He's doing anything he can to stay afloat because maybe he doesn't want to keep playing these same heavy characters all the time heavy by I mean villain he plays maybe that's all he's getting offered maybe people don't want to put him in these other things or maybe he's happy just making enough maybe he's made enough and he's happy just occasionally working Mm. because there's no way he couldn't be on an HBO show or a TV show that is a little grittier could have been in Atlanta there's no way he can't be in these kinds of shows so it may be a combination of his choice Mm -hmm. and it may be a combination of these roles just drying up for him and casting directors not wanting to put him or filmmakers not wanting to put him in these things I love him and it just made me so sad when that's what he's doing and I heard the, the Arby's commercial and I was like girl stop I, I love, he, he's a weird situation because yeah. he's I love him too yeah and he in that era where he was just booming he played a lot of roles where you're like oh you got some comedy yes. in you you got some this you got yes. some that yeah. but the thing about him I think is that and this is maybe part of the problem not a criticism of him is he's yeah. got this voice and this mm-hmm. appearance that are iconic and associated with a certain kind of people yeah and so even though he actually has a lot of range when people are thinking of casting him they go, oh, it's just that's a Ving Rames kind of guy. You right. know what I mean? Like right. they put him in a very, very small box. Well, look at look at I and I pronounce you Chuck and Larry. He was great as that gay uh, firefighter with them in the film. That was a great change of pace for him. I am thrilled to admit that I've never seen I now pronounce you Chuck. <laughs> never and Larry. saw it either. I'm so proud of that. I will oh. say he does show up in the Mission Impossible movies, and yes. that's great. He's great, but he, his parts are always Luther, so small. Yeah. And yes. he, what's great is they do let him be comic relief mm-hmm. in those yeah. films, mm-hmm. but. They're few and far between. Yep. He's so talented. He should be around more. Okay, I mean, and, and one yeah. really small choice in this thing with Bruce Willis, yeah. which is just a great Ving Rhames monologue. And that's it. Again, it's a bold choice. I'm going to have a guy not talking and just look at him for a really, really long time while yeah. we don't see the face of the guy who is talking. The Band-Aid on the back of the yes. neck. <laughs> that's a great director right there. Yeah. Like that's just a little, it's little details that make you a good director. And that's one of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a great moment. And in walk uh, Jules and Vince. Yes. And what are they wearing? Yeah. Terrible clothes. This is very strange. Kmart specials. That UC Santa Cruz slug shirt. Yeah. Shirt. <laughs> I mean that. And and this is again the confidence of the filmmaker to go like, we were 
with Honey Bunny and Pumpkin in this scene, and it got really interesting, and then we left. Mm-hmm. And then we're in this scene where they're, we're going to kill these guys, yep. and it gets really interesting. We leave, and then and then we go to uh, Bruce Willis, which is a kind of a strange non sequitur, yeah. although a great monologue. And then in walk those killers in these weird outfits, <laughs> and we don't get any info. We don't have any connection between right. what's happened to them or where we don't know where we are or when. Totally bizarre. But they immediately become interesting and vulnerable and a tr- uh, like uh, something the audience can be invested in because you immediately undercut their power. Because mm-hmm. as soon as a bartender opens the door and starts laughing at them as they walk in, then you undercut the oh. viciousness of what it, you had just seen them do in the scene before. Yes. But what, and what is a great moment is when Willis comes to the bar. And has that exchange with Travolta. Yeah. And to me, those are the small dialogue exchanges in Tarantino films that make me love Tarantino films. Because I ain't your friend, Palooka. Like, just the idea of using the word Palooka. I was like, for me, as a fan of boxing films from the 40s and 50s, when he said Palooka, I'm like, huh? This is brilliant. And these are these small little exchanges that make you understand the, the, the affection that he really has for these kinds of films and the research he does as a film lover. You know? I love that that's what you went to because yeah. for me in that scene, it's the bartender going, my name's Paul and this is between y'all. <laughs> yeah. And that's the moment that I remember and that yeah. I always quote, there's a little something for everyone. Yeah. Well, and the thing too, like things like Palooka, things yeah. like the don't be Punchy. a square. Yeah. Punchy, we talk, yeah. talk about before. These are not the way that any humans talk. No, not anymore. These are the way that movies talk. No, I don't mean not anymore. Well, I, mean, I don't think the they talk that way. Sure in the they said in the Maybe they did. Yeah. But this are is you going to prison or are you going to who's gal? I mean, there's just certain things that you don't ever say. And these are this is this is this is why this is a movie about movies. This is movie language. Yes. Yes. And it's awesome. We get a little bit more information about the date with Mia, and then and then Vince he needs to go get some drugs. Yes. So let's go off and see our friend Eric Stoltz. Oh, here we go, Lance. Man, the set direction on that apartment or the house that they live in, yeah. that ramshackle, nasty drug den yes. is so great. Built, by the way, in an old craftsman bungalow. Yes. That, like, there are a lot of those in L.A. Yeah. Like, yeah. The, and a lot of them really dilapidated and, and messed up. You go, because I live in a craftsman house. It's like, oh, that's like a hundred-year-old house yeah. that's beautiful, and it's just falling to pieces drug den. Drug Den. Yeah. Drug yeah. Den and the amazing bathrobe. Like, everything yeah. about Eric Stoltz's introduction, you don't need to have the sound on. All you need to do is look at what you are given visually, and yeah. you know everything. Yeah. And Eric Stoltz is a guy who's given some unbelievable performances mm-hmm. and some very dramatic things and very complicated things. This is one of my favorite of his performances. <laughs> it's so much that guy. Yeah. yeah. I'm giving you some out of my own private stash. That is what a nice guy I am. Um, out of balloons. Is the baggie all right? Yeah, it's cool. Just get one for you. Honey, will you get me some baggies and uh, twistics from the kitchen? Hey. Hey, uh, what do you think about Trudy? She ain't got a boyfriend. You want to uh, hang out, get high? Which one's Trudy? I want all the shit in her face. No, that's Jody. That's my wife. He's pretty mellow. He's pretty friendly. He deals some drugs. And again, have we seen this kind of drug dealer in 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 yeah. film? Because normally a drug dealer in film is that scary guy. You're right. And this is not that guy. I feel like this is one of the things that Tarantino is so great at. Like you give the druggie, you get like the sweet druggie, like Brad mm. Pitt in True Romance. Yeah. 
or Eric Stoltz in this. Like right. it's the guy who just he's just living his life, man, yeah. and he just happens to be selling some black tar hair. Or, right. You know, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, something I had to bring up. I was thinking about where to bring it up, but uh, it really hit me in this scene in particular, which is Tarantino's use of racial epithets and racism. Yeah. And we talked about it in Reservoir Dogs. Um, it bugs me. I've gotten to the point mm. now where it does, and, and in this scene in particular, because I don't, because I really like this character of Lance. Yeah. Mm. I don't believe he talked that way. Like that doesn't. It's and there's a lot of times where it seems it is Tarantino trying to shock you, and I mm. feel the filmmaker in a way that takes me now out of the movie. That's for me personally. I don't know how you okay. feel. I will go to the person who actually is uh, ethnically diverse. <laughs> so the two Jews should not uh, get into this so much. Just sit there counting your money. Uh, no, I, I, whoa, whoa. I would I say wish. here's my <laughs> here's my feeling about it. A, uh, I agree with you, Steve. Actually, watching this time, it really bothered me how much there was in it. I had forgotten how many, and it feels unnecessary in certain moments. But then again. I don't hang around drug dealers. I don't hang around criminals. I don't hang around these kinds of people. And it may be secondhand nature to them to say these kind of racial epithets like it's no big deal. It may be. So for me, I, although I may have an issue with it, I don't come from that kind of background and I don't have come from that kind of experience. And so, and this is the thing that when we talk about Sam Jackson, Sam Jackson is basically Tarantino's get out of jail free card for this kind of stuff. Because Sam even came back at Spike mm -hmm. when Spike came out about it in the late 90s. Yeah. Because um, he was upset at how much right. uh, Tarantino used the N-word in all his films. Um, and Sam was like, Spike needs to calm down. People do talk like this. And whether he wants to admit or not, they do. And so... I get Spike's point because you are essentially saying it's okay to because you're putting these characters that are interesting and attractive to watch saying this dialogue. Therefore, you're letting other people say it's okay. But then again, rap artists use the N word all the time now in their or all the time since the '90s in their stuff, and white kids think they can say it now too. So it's like, where is the line? Where is the line? Because they're telling their truth, and Tarantino may be writing stuff that he knows people speak like from those kinds of. I don't know what his upbringing is like. Maybe he was around these kind of people, and so. He speaks, he writes for what they speak. Does it bother me? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I also kind of understand it because these are not people that I know. Sure. Um, so I don't know. I mean, as somebody who did deal a fair amount of drugs in high school. Oh my God, you're admitting <laughs> this on a podcast. All right. I don't care. It was, statue of statue of it was weed. Who gives a shit? There we go. And whose best friend also dealt a lot of drugs, uh, also weed. And I feel like such an asshole. Some of my best friends are black, <laughs> who's a six foot five black guy yeah. who uses the N word constantly around me. Yeah. And I have to say to him, you can't do that. Like, mm. you can do it in your house. He's like, I'm black. I'm like, right. But. You make other people uncomfortable right. when we're in public. We were out to dinner once and he kept talking about Jews, 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 Jews. And this woman came over and sat down at her table or like sort of squatted down by her table. And she was like, excuse me, I just want you to know I'm Jewish and I'm extremely offended by the way you're using that word. He'd been saying it and we're both loud and he's yeah. especially loud. And he was like, lady, I'm talking about my brother who converted to Hasidic Judaism with my best friend. And he points at me. Who's a fucking Jew? So you can kiss my balls. You're not part of this conversation. He said that. So, oh Whoa. yeah, we were in Santa Monica. Santa Monica's the worst. I would like to meet this guy. Oh, he's the best. I love him. <laughs> so, um, I understand how the word makes people extremely uncomfortable. Yeah. Eric Stoltz using it 
feels weird and fake yes. and like mm-hmm. I think the problem is the delivery. That's, that's, what, that. that's what I'm saying. I, I think that it's that. like it shouldn't come out of certain people's mouths. The writing of it has bothered me more in other properties. Like mm. I was really bothered by it. I'll stick to Tarantino in Django. Like in Django. It's all over Django. And also because of what the subject matter was, it felt like it was so much more hatefully used. Mm -hmm. In this, I can say that it doesn't bother me as much. However, it's not my experience. And therefore, Mm. I am desensitized to the word because I don't have an intrinsic experience related to it. So, but I think that it also, it depends on who you are and who your background, what your background is and how you perceive certain things. Like, there's words I don't mind at all. Like, I love the word cunt. I love the word twat. Yeah. But I'm, Fair. you know, in the minority. And I feel mm-hmm. like as a woman, that's something I have to reclaim. If I were a black person, I don't know how I would feel about those scenes. And especially mm-hmm. little ginger Eric Stoltz, who I just now defamed by calling him a ginger, <laughs> would would feel, you know? Well, and this is, the, the, I think the thing to me, I am a firm believer in free speech. I'm like, if you're an artist and that's what you want to do, then I'm... I believe that I don't like there being forbidden words, mm. but as a, a watcher of this film, it's How do you feel re- about moist. It's fine. Okay. It's a nice moist sponge cake. I don't some know. people dislike that. I word. know some people really don't like it. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> you, I've somehow derailed from my train of thought. Um, sponge cake. Is that, is that there? <laughs> that word. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. Is, is if, uh, it's different when Sam Jackson uses the word mm-hmm. than it is when Quentin Tarantino and when um, Eric Stoltz use it. Mm-hmm. Is that and it's my objection to it isn't just the the racism of the word itself. Mm. I don't believe that there should be things that should never be said. That just doesn't mm. uh, like one of the plays I did when I was in college was all about racism and that word was used. Mm-hmm. Um, is that it doesn't feel in character for Eric Stoltz and it brings attention to itself in a way. Is that it feels like I think what I said before is it feels like the filmmaker saying, "Look what I can do," you know, and mm. that's where it's and it takes me out of the film. Okay, it's not just the racism takes me out of the film. It's that it seems. Uh, unnecessary to a scene that was already great yeah you know what i mean that's just sort of it just kind of sticks out to me sometimes i think you i think i feel more about what you were saying it's delivery i had that problem too when tarantino's doing it later on in the film he says does my house have a sign that says what he says it says and i'm like why why are you saying it like that like i just don't understand well because there's tarantino's a terrible actor right whenever he's there all of his dialogue you're like let other people say it (laughs) every time i know every time so travolta gets his drugs and he asks eric stoltz the mannerisms of him being high the manner oh, are something great. that i did not understand until i experienced did being high know? myself because i didn't get high until i was 37 years old what? so i didn't know what this was like so i would see this movie multiple times and like oh interesting he's doing these mannerisms it wasn't until i actually got high and then watched this movie and, and i understood like i know what that's like to kind of shuffle and move your head around and kind of and smell the liquor before you like all of that is so recognizable to me now but at the time when i watched it it, re- it was like oh this it, is it's doing a, a great, caricature it's a, a great high yeah i mean it really and the attention paid to the attention to detail of how he shoots up yes it is like erotic yeah the way that it's presented on film yeah god i mean yeah. the zipper the you know cooking it the all yeah. of the stuff is really lovingly done mm-hmm. in a way that's not, i don't know if it's done in film i can't think of another movie that does it that way because film is very puritanical hollywood is very puritanical <sighs> i would say maybe ways. requiem requiem is close requiem for a dream yeah. is kind of close and if you ever saw the boost 
the I James Woods, Sean Young movie from the 80s that's very horrific, uh, They the way they portray their... And Rush, I guess Rush, too, the Jennifer, Jennifer Jason Lee and Jason Patrick movie. Oh, I've never they seen have it. that kind of homage mm-hmm. to the drugs or whatever. Yeah. So so we've got John Travolta. He's high. He's yeah. heading to Mia. His entrance into that house oh, over the so intercom is just hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, lost Travolta wandering around looking at stuff so messed up. And then the introduction of Uma Thurman yeah. where you said it. She is trouble. Yeah. She and yeah. the minute you see her Which you see her feet first. <laughs> Not uncoincidentally. Yes. Tarantino, those little piggies. That's right. Oh yeah. But I feel like yeah. Because we've talked about like what cinema means and we know what the femme fatale is supposed to be. And I love that she physically is not necessarily like if you just heard about this character, Mm -hmm. wouldn't you expect more of like a like a fatal blonde situation, something a little bit more buxom, something maybe a little bit more scantily clad? Like I I, love my image. It's so Uma Thurman in my head that all I can think of is Uma Thurman. Sure. But I just, I, that was always something that mm-hmm. I really appreciated where uh, you talk about sort of the Ving Rames's mobster yeah. wife and you mm-hmm. expect something that is more, I don't know, like. More Marilyn Monroe. Exactly. Right. Exactly. But also more powerful in a different way. You know what I'm saying? Like her sexuality is her power, but Uma's, her sexuality is here, but it's not the powerful thing about her. And even the beginning, the way we're introduced to Mia, Mia is watching. Yeah. Through the screens. It's a power move. Yeah. She wants to make him wait. She wants to watch him on the cameras. That is fucking trouble. That is a woman. <laughs> no, she, she wants to be. She, and remember, the introduction is she was a former actress. She's an actress. She was. She had a, a possibly. She had a pilot, right? They do that whole conversation. She had the pilot that is the theme or is the plot of Kill Bill. Right. 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 The Force right. Five, which I think is great. When he says, "You are aware that there are shows on television. You are there's right. television that has shows on it," which I thought was a great comeback. <laughs> but like that kind of thing is 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 let you the let you into the uh, um, idea of what the person you're dealing with. This is a failed actress who is probably with this guy because she wants some kind of money and wants some kind of status, and so she has so she's going to watch him and it's a power move and I think her arc through this part of the story is fantastic Mm -hmm. from this woman who wants to be in power to the woman who ends up at the end being like just she's stripped of all her power and she's this vulnerable little girl saying to him like I'd be just as in much trouble as you and they have a sweet tender moment and we'll get to it but I think it's to watch her arc is great she has all the power. Yes, she does. She is right controlling off everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, through through a computer screen and knobs and cameras at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. But then just intellectually, yes. she's manipulating him. She controls where they go. She could, everything about the evening she's controlling. Yeah, but Vince doesn't. Vince doesn't. Vince doesn't become a puppy dog. Vince is. He has his opinions about shit, mm-hmm. but he does. And he. So it's a good sure. back and forth. It's definitely a flirtation, and it makes you watching it this time. I was like, maybe there was something going on with Tony Rocky Horror. Maybe there's something. I, well, one of the on big here. questions I have is we don't actually ever get to know. Yeah, right. Yeah. Is that she finally, you know, we have we get to we get to Jack Rabbit Slims, yeah. which is a fantastic set. Um and I always forget, by the way, that that's Steve Buscemi is oh, Buddy yeah. Holly. The yeah. Buddy Holly. I totally, totally I love forget that. that. And yeah. there are two of them. There are two of these Jack or there there is a Jack Rabbit Slims somewhere in the northern somewhere. Really? I, I looked really? it up. Yeah. Oh that's right. cool. I didn't know that. The thing that always gets me in that scene is now watching it. A five dollar shake. I know, yeah. like the same a five dollar shake. 
$5? Honey, I can't get a juice for under 10 right. yeah. Are you kidding me? I would kill for a $5 shake. I so remember wanting to have that shake, though. Oh, is that it? Because the moment where shake. he gets his damn good shake. His yeah. damn good shake. I know. But that's oh. him pushing back. Again, that's him pushing back and also this idea. And also, the names of the shakes. Yeah. You want that Amos and Andy? Or you want that... Oh, wait. That's oh, oh uh, what's the other one? Do you want that Amos and Andy? Or Martin and Lewis. Martin and Lewis. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank yeah. you. Oh yeah. yeah, Martin and Lewis. That's a great point. Why Amos and Andy? That's those are people in blackface. Yeah, that's an interesting thing to use, man. And I get it because it's Jack Rabbit Slims. That time, Amos and Andy was big during that time in the forties and fifties. But still, it's kind of walking that line of racism. Again, it goes to that. Th- I, I, I'm not saying that Quentin Tarantino's a racist. No, nope. but I'm I am saying that he likes the shock value of racism. Sure. He that is that is a and and maybe you know he likes the shock value of violence so mm-hmm. and he likes the shock language uh, shock shockness of profanity mm-hmm. so may, maybe it's just another tool to him but not well sex. but what else would you call it would you call it like the Icantina because then you're still getting no. into some difficulties what would you call it you'd be in the chocolate 50s. and vanilla you could say who, who, the Nicholas <laughs> Brothers you could call them Nicholas Brothers who were dance mm. famous dancers in the fifties uh, no because you're no. still using race to no. describe the flavors well, you're saying of chocolate still, you're still saying chocolate I, but they're not blackface they're well, actually how about, black. who, wait, why isn't it the the, the the Sammy and the you could say the Sammy, Sammy and, and the Dean or something. Well, that it, doesn't because Dean's Martin not black. Lewis, Martin or, Lewis is the or white. the Martin and Davis. Well, Davis Jr. because uh, it doesn't roll off the tongue. See, <laughs> okay, so we're gonna put out a supplemental material of just our entire <laughs> Jack Rabbit Slim's menu <laughs> that is more racially sensitive. You could say that. You could, <laughs> Yeah, we you need it. Well, you're not yeah. gonna call it like the Cosby and. No. By the way, did you guys have you ever seen the movie? Mother, wait, Mother yeah, Mother Judge and Speed. Yeah, yes, of course. Attention, ladies and gentlemen, we have an urgent code three from 20th Century Fox. Be on the lookout for Bill Cosby, Raquel Welch, and Harvey Keitel in Mother Jugs and Speed. Speaking of Harvey Keitel yeah. and Bill Cosby and Raquel Welch, Raquel Welch, come on, yeah, that's a weird, crazy. Film. Anyway, sorry, that's a very. Weird I don't think life. that's appearing anytime soon on the Cinema. <laughs> no, <no. laughs> what if that had been my choice? You guys, we're doing Mother Jugs and Speed. Look, I haven't watched it in a long time. <laughs> There's <laughs> another one. This is also since we're off on a tangent already. Okay. There is a movie with Kate Beckinsale and mm-hmm. Matthew McConaughey where she yes, tiptoes. Oh my! That has been God. legend in our group. Yes. Of, in our yeah. group. Most offensive yes. the trailer I've never watched it. did you actually watch yeah, it yeah yeah Mike Ross oh, of course you watch it with Ross yeah. he, we will put it on we will watch it and laugh our balls off and he's like he indoctrinates you into the group oh by watching this film so Steve <laughs> you just watched the trailer no, the trailer I've seen the trailer so yeah. the, where they like introduce Gary Oldman Gary going Oldman, yeah. in the role of a lifetime <laughs> Gary yeah. Oldman playing a midget. a midget it is so offensive yeah and you All can right. tell when he's like behind a bar and when they use a body double midget to move and when they're putting uh, and when he's standing there with shoes under his knees oh it's, so God, ridiculous. So it's so ridiculous it's so ridiculous okay. oh and Patricia Arquette is in it too yes she's his girlfriend it's an Arquette uh, anyway. right. so we're having God. it's really it's a nice date we talk about Amsterdam it is a fucking date first it's of a date. all yes. no there's no question that she this is, is flirting and he is flirting yeah and he he's maybe at first reluctantly flirting a yes. little bit but in the end this is a date yeah and we get brought up the joke that we don't get to we don't say at this point which yeah. is a good plant and we move right into the dance contest yes oh, god the dance contest. the iconic yeah it was a teenage wedding and the old folks wished them well you could see that pierre did truly love the mademoiselle man that's them making up 
in oh, my yeah. opinion, that's them making it. Totally. Yeah. 100%. The dance. Well, and that's also... That scene, that part of the scene, is incredibly long. Yes. It's really long. There's no dialogue. It's just the song. I mean, who else could you get to do that but John Travolta, Mm. too? And I remember in the theater going, John Travolta's dancing. (laughs) Yeah. And just having this sort of joy. Yeah. And again, this is a meta moment. You know, it's because you're not just watching this character of Vince. You are watching John Travolta, who you have complicated feelings for from Mm -hmm. the past, Mm -hmm. do this Mm -hmm. moment. Yeah. Yeah, and now I've got the song completely stuck in my head. It was a teenage wedding mm-hmm. and the old folks. Yeah, on and on. And Uma's great, too, during doing her She's dance, great, yeah. giving it to her butt sticking out, her hands moving, all the feet yeah. up, and it's great. And you talk about flirtation yeah. and, you know, nonverbal communication. No. It is also a power play. Yes. It is very much a power play. She's like, you're doing this. You're going to win this for me. Mm-hmm. And we're also going to have this moment where our relationship is sort of taken to the next level. Yeah. Physically. Yeah. Without touching. And what's funny, too, and I remember thinking about it this time, is that we started in this movie about these two people robbing a restaurant. We've completely forgotten about them. Yes. Totally. We, we, we then went into this scene where these guys execute these people with big kahuna burgers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm really not thinking about that at all. I'm Now I'm just in this scene in this dance contest. Yeah. And this couple, and it's sort of will they or won't they? We go home. They've obviously had a great night. Obviously a little <laughs> intoxicated. And, uh, and now I'm going, oh, shit. What if he gives her a foot massage? He, he yeah. wants to give her more than a foot massage. The and talk the he t- gives himself oh, in the mirror. One drink, and that's it. Don't be rude. Drink your drink. But do it quickly. That is one of... You're going to go home. You're going to jerk off. That's it. So, you're going to go out there. You're going to say goodnight. I've had a very lovely evening. Walk out the door. Get in the car. Go home, jerk off, and that's all you're gonna do. I'm not gonna lie to you. I've given myself that talk a few times in, the, in certain situations, rather than give a focus on. or other things. Yeah, you have that conversation with you. Don't you don't do this. Don't do this. Just go just go home. You have it. It's it happens. And in the meantime, so Mia real. outside. Yes, putting well, before, on. Before we yeah. get to that, I just yeah. want to ask one question, yeah. which is if what is about to happen that you're getting to doesn't happen. Does John Travolta get out the door or not? That's a great Okay, question. so he that is a great question. So she's got the urge overkill playing. Mm-hmm. Right. He comes out of the bathroom like, all right, I'm going to take off. And she says to him, she, why don't, don't you stay for a nightcap or something? Absolutely, of course she does. And she's yeah. wearing his jacket. He has to get the jacket back. Mm-hmm. And then, oh mm-hmm. man, See, does he get out the door? Well... If he didn't get out the door, he would have known enough to run, and then maybe he wouldn't have gone over to Bruce Willis's apartment because he wouldn't have been sent there. Yeah, I mean, I kind of right. think that in this movie, Vince Vega's dead either way. <laughs> is, that, is that if he if she ODs, he gets killed by Bruce Willis. Right. If she doesn't OD, I think he sleeps with her. No, I don't think he's getting think out he the door. I do. Wow. If she's if she's into sleeping with him. Like, like I don't think he gets out the door. It's a dangerous situation because, A, if he denies her, then he, she can hold that over him. That's true, too. And mess him up with Marcellus, depending mm-hmm. on the kind of woman she is. Uh, and if he does, it, she could also have him messed up by the guilt she feels of doing it. This is why this woman is dangerous. Does she well, feel guilt? she obviously is not planning on going to sleep anytime soon because yes. she's doing bumps of what yes. she thinks is cocaine. Great point. Yeah. 
Great points. So she's preparing for a longer night. Yeah. Oh man, Steve, you just blew my mind. But this is crazy. Like I never occurred to me. Like, what if she doesn't? Well, and and I mean, like we start with her in those movie screens, watching him with the camera. She's obviously a bad person. Yeah. She's obviously, you know, she's creating the agenda for the whole evening from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So what she wants out of Vince Vega is a very well. Now I've got this whole other thing in my head when we're we're thinking about like classic femme fatales. Maybe all she wants is to get away from a horrible Marcellus Wallace right. and she needs like blackmail evidence and she could record their tryst and then she could say to him you have to take me away from this mm. life I don't want anymore we'll buy five dollar shakes and we'll dance into the sunset <laughs> but none of that happens but he's still a criminal himself so it's not like she's running off with someone who's well, good and, and, exactly and, and, but and they'll have a nice that, life because he can pay for things that's, that's true a, that's a good that's a good theory except for the fact that doesn't seem like her character she mm. doesn't seem like a person who needs saving who needs yeah. saving true she is so powerful Powerful, yeah, and so manipulating the situation. Mm-hmm. She seems like she's just having fun. I think she's just playing with him. And by the way, I feel bad for uh, what's his name, Carrie. What's Rocky? To- Tony Rocky. Tony Hor- Rocky Horror. I can never say that. Tony Rocky Horror. I feel bad for him because if she put whatever on him that yeah. she's now putting on Vince yeah. and he ends up out the window. I think that if that movie were made today and we had Tony Rocky Horror in it, it would be Jason Momoa. <laughs> Fair enough. He might not be Samoan. I think he's Hawaiian. Yeah, he's yeah. Hawaiian. He's not Samoan, so he's the Rock. Right. Okay, so leaving a po- aside our alternate reality. Yeah, sorry. Um, yes, she reaches in that pocket and she pulls. Now, I don't know anything about what happens if you snort heroin. Okay. But this scared the shit out of me when I saw it in the movie. And that's mm-hmm. why you never did it. See? Uh, as far it's as you like know. A, that's why it's you like snort a, heroin. It's like a PSA. It's like yeah. a do not do drugs, <laughs> yeah. kids. It is a really disturbing moment. Mm-hmm. Well, and also that's a great acting moment. Like the instant rollback of the eyes and yeah. the head and her sort of collapsing and then yeah. him coming out and finding her. And we yeah. never really know how much time she's been out. Oh, because to go to black frame. Yeah. yeah. Come back out. Uh, so we don't know how long she's been out. We don't know how long she's been laying there in a pool of her own vomit. And hearing Tarantino's voice and not seeing him while well, you're just looking at that really brutal shot of her. Yeah. It is really, really upsetting. Yeah. Uh, Tarantino's voice? I'm oh, sorry. Travolta's. Sorry. I've been doing that too. Worse. It's the tease. Damn tease. Travolta going nuts about her being, yeah, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. And yeah. Then he just, yeah. But he, he immediately been, knows what to do. Well, yeah. <laughs> Run off to get Lance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's great about it too is that even in that condition that he's in, he's like woken up. He's like, okay, you know, I bet he hasn't done anything since they went out. And so when he gets back in, when he gets back in there with her, he's not going to do anything else. Yeah, he's going to try to stay as sober as possible. And seeing her like that wakes him the fuck up even more, you know. But also the fact that he doesn't pull up, like he's on the phone with Lance. Yeah, don't bring her here. Don't bring her here. And then it's not just I'm bringing her here. I'm bringing her onto your front lawn. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, good. Great shot of that car pulling up. It's smashing into the brick wall. Yeah, this is not subtle. No. Yeah. Dragging her in, and this is one of the great scenes of all time. Yes, I all mean time. this scene is so intense. And it's intense and funny and weird and feels real. <laughs> real. Yeah. No, 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 man. I ain't giving you, you. You're going to give it a shot. Oh, you're going to give it a shot. I ain't giving no, it a shot. I ain't giving it a shot. I never done this yeah, before. I ain't never done it before either, all right? I ain't starting now. Look, you brought it here, and that means that you're going to give it a shot. The day that I bring an ODM bitch to your house, then I give it a shot. Give it a shot. Give it here. They don't. Have you ever noticed that, like, the red dot on her chest goes from being a dot to being kind of heart shaped? It's like one <laughs> oh, of the few. It's one of the few continuity errors that I spotted. Oh, it wow. like gets a little dot shaped, then it gets a little heart shaped. But man, and then it goes back to being a dot. But that scene, and I mean, Rosanna Arquette in that mm. too. That 
her being like that She's was hilarious. wild. Yeah. And also, one of the things I love is when they rip her blouse open because there has been so much sort of like sexual buildup, but we haven't really seen that much of her body. Right. And then she's wearing that like black bustier underneath. And she is so vulnerable. And then that plunger, that, and the drip off of the tip of the plunger, and everybody's eyes, and Roseanne Arquette looking around, and like the fear. And then, poof. Right. Come on. So, two stories about this. Story one is that on their first screening in the U.S., which is the New York Film Festival, someone uh, had to stop the movie. Someone started screaming then because someone they thought someone was having a heart attack, but in fact they were going into a diabetic shock, <gasps> an insulin shock. So they had to stop the film in the scene. What? And I swear to God this is true. And you could ask Karen. <laughs> okay. When I saw it in Westwood... They had to stop the movie in this scene because someone had a heart attack. No. <laughs> totally, totally true. The paramedics showed up. That's awesome. They had to take... It wasn't awesome for well, him. Well, well, sure. But yes, no, this is true. They literally, in the middle of that scene, someone had a heart attack when oh I saw this movie. Oh, my God. That is the power of filmmaking. Yep. And it is a really, really tense scene. When yep. Karen and I watched it last night, mm-hmm. she has a real needle thing. Oh. And she... Pretty much was covering her face the whole scene. Yeah. Wow! Because it, well, it is everything brutal. builds right. He slams the car into the thing. We he yells at Eric Stoltz on the lawn and says, "You know, you know who this is. We'll both be dead. You yeah. know what this is. I'll be forced to tell him. I'm going to be forced to tell him mm-hmm. that you didn't help." So yeah. he basically recruits him. They they bring her into the car, and then Rosanna Arquette's being woken up from sleep. She's already irritated <laughs> that the phone rang, and she's so believable, yeah. yelling at him, "What the fuck is this?" And then he's like, "Go get." And then she's like, "Fuck you, fuck you." And then they go and get it, and he's got to find his black book. So the, the the stakes are are costly, and they're acting like normal people when you're in a stress. Like they're yes. in panic, they're screaming, yelling, out yeah, you're yeah. freaking out. And then he's got to do the dot, and Stoltz won't do it. And then Tarantino, like you said, does a great job of these small close-ups. Yeah. yeah. And then boom, and her reaction is amazing. Yeah. amazing. And, the, and the, the needle is still sticking uh, yes. out of her chest. So great. But apparently, according to doctors, that would not actually work. Oh. Yeah. Really? So don't do it at home. Yeah, don't, don't try. Go home, kids. All right, I guess I'll throw out that adrenaline syringe I have sitting. Well, in Well, I freezer. think it still works, but you have to go into your bloodstream, not in your heart. If you did it to your heart, you would just puncture your heart and you would start bleeding out. <laughs> wow. So it's a bad plan. So you're <laughs> saying that Quentin Tarantino is not really realistic. What I'm saying is that maybe it's just a narrative device, but one of the coolest ones of all time. <laughs> it's great. And then, like you said, when yep. you said Roca, is it like they bring her back to the house yeah. and the way she walks inside that broken down sort of robotic walk yeah. and she turns back and she's still so covered in blood but they're they're homies now mm-hmm. they are true true oh, friends yeah. i think that's the first time you glimpse that they could fall in love as opposed to a night of hooking up mm-hmm. because when he does that kiss that's from a place of love. As much as that guy conceive of the concept of love, that is a moment of love for him because he respects what they've been through and that she isn't going to hold it against him. And she even, like, she retains who she is. And he sees her stripped of all his, all her, all her like, power play bullshit. And when she tells him the joke, which is an intimate thing, <laughs> just yeah. like I don't tell you my real name on this podcast, it's an intimate thing. She didn't want to tell it to him because some women do have these things that they will not tell you until they feel this trust for you. And I discover this, obviously, through my life there's and when they do tell you it's because they do finally feel that trust for you with you and it's it's little things and that little joke for her for whatever reason is connected to uh, a possible success that didn't come through or an embarrassment because she had to say those lines of dialogue either way she gives him that gift at the end for him saving her life and his reaction when she turns around blowing her the kiss just beautiful man mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and then 
let's leave this plot. <laughs> yes. But That's this a- is what's so brilliant. You never miss it, though. You nope. feel like, oh, it's it's like it's like every time yep. you open a gift on you know Christmas or Hanukkah morning, although it's Hanukkah night, but whatever. <laughs> Whenever you're opening gifts, it's like everyone just gets better and better and better. It's yeah. this Russian nesting doll, but instead the dolls are getting larger instead of smaller. Oh, that is the craziest, great. most interesting image I've ever I heard like about. That, right? I yes. like it. Well, and part of it too is that is that when you leave, when you're going to derail the audience from something they're interested in, the next thing you show them has to be really awesome. interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the in the first one, we left Honey Bunny and Pumpkin. Uh, going and we went right into the Royale with cheese mm-hmm. in Amsterdam and there's this great dialogue and you're like okay I'm good and now we're going to leave this one and we go into a monologue yeah that is among the most amazing monologues ever on film absolutely Christopher Walken oh man gold watch come on this watch was on your daddy's wrist when he was shot down over Hanoi he was captured from a Vietnamese prison camp he knew that if the gooks ever saw the watch, it'd be confiscated, taken away. The way your dad looked at it, this watch was your birthright. You'd be damned if any slope's gonna put the greasy yellow hands on his boy's birthright. So he hid it. In one place he knew he could hide something, his ass. Five long years he wore this watch, up his ass. Then he died of dysentery. He'd give me the watch. I hid this uncomfortable hunk of metal up my ass two years. Then... After seven years, I was sent home to my family. Now, little man, I give the watch to you. I'm realizing as we're talking about this just how much of an impact Tarantino has had, not just on me, like creatively, but psychologically. When I got married, uh, the song that we walked down the aisle to was "You're So" the the score of "You're So Cool" from True Romance. Oh, so great! And one of the reasons I knew I was in love with my husband is because he can quote damn near this entire monologue, wow. and right. he does it for me sometimes when I'm in a bad mood. And it just makes me is so he holding happy. your feet while he does this? Nope, he's just, he's <laughs> this watch. Like sometimes he'll literally just say "just this watch" just to make me smile. <laughs> It's God, awesome. It. To me, of a guy of a guy who's had many iconic and sometimes bizarre performances, this is the Christopher Walken moment of all time. Of all oh, time. Wow, that's Agreed. a great point. Yeah. Agreed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, this yeah. is it. Who's gonna yeah. be dead? Who's gonna be dead? <laughs> and, and what's, weird, what's weird about this monologue, and it's a long monologue. It is a three minute monologue. It's a long monologue. It is completely disturbing. Yes. And really intense and serious and fucking hilarious hilarious all at the same time yeah because yes. he's delivering it to a eight-year-old kid oh my god about this when he's watching what nanuka the north or whatever he's watching uh there on the, <laughs> whatever that is that he's watching on television some weird cartoon. i'm sure it's some weird cartoon i should know it was popular know back then is. but like him talking about the watch and like why does he have to deliver this at this point at this time in this kid's life it's so interesting well, and i want to say to this whole family hey guys maybe that watch wasn't that important <laughs> you know what <laughs> Well, but also like the POV shot that he's right there in it with you, like right there and the color of the room, like there's Mm -hmm. this deep green everywhere around you. His suit, his uh, uniform is so like the saturation is so heavy. You're getting into like this deep, surreal madness Mm -hmm. and I love it. Well, and, and just little things like this is where directing comes in is 
okay, he's made the speech and now the kid is going to take the watch and you get to direct the kid. How does the kid take the watch? And in my mind, the kid has to take in what he hears and reluctantly reach up and slowly take the watch. And that's not what happened. Mm -hmm. That kid goes, I want that watch. And it's such a weird choice. A, it's a weird choice for the scene, but then the energy of it propels you directly into Bruce Willis sitting up from the dream. Is that it's, there's, and that, I'm t- there's a lot of weird things that grown-ups lay on kids. Well, <laughs> that is some weird shit to lay on an eight-year-old. And you can say there are moments of racism in that monologue. The the fact that he says slope, the fact that he says yellow, dirty yellow hands. Like there's these little things that are in there too. That you're just like, okay, okay. But we excuse it in the course of that monologue because the guy you has just got out of POW camp. He was tortured. He was so he well, has yeah, the, this kind of anger towards well, that's this situation. That, that, right. That, that's exactly correctly within the the character. Why is why you don't. Think, uh, it's also supposed to be period, so I think right. it's a little bit more forgivable. And the in the context of the film, yeah, because you're like, oh, different time, right. different era, right? So uh, apparently, Butch is not going to throw this fight. No, um, which we saw him discuss it with with Ving yeah, Rhames earlier, earlier from Ving Rhames. Yeah, we had that. He doesn't throw, and it's so and funny. He goes into the fight, and then he is running away. Still got mm-hmm. his gloves on, in his shorts, in his robe running out of the fight and jumping in a taxi. Yeah, one of my favorite things is the, the sound he makes before he goes into the fight, just as it cuts. <gasps> oh. Like, he, it's beast-like. Yeah. Mm. Because he knows that he is psyching himself up to do something and confront something that is this massive. Yeah. And to, to turn on Marcellus Wallace, who seems to be the kingpin of this entire town, and he's going to do this thing, and he is psyching himself up for more than just the fight. And it's boom. also a really interesting way to reveal narrative, like as opposed right. yeah. to it being yeah. like, because that could be horribly expositional. Mm-hmm. It could be really clodden and wooden, and it's done in such a deft way, like yeah. where you find out all the little tidbits of information about, and you realize the peril he's in, and because of what we know about Mia, yeah. because of what we know about how dangerous Marcellus is, you know like just how deep this guy is in. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and and then we hear almost offhand through the announcers yeah. that he actually killed the guy in the yeah. room. Yep. And Bruce Willis's deep sadness and regret and real remorse over that. Yeah. <laughs> there is none. So no. deep. So no. so momentarily deep. And it's like he should have been a better fighter. Right. I mean, right. It's just like it's and, and this is goes back to what you said before. Yeah. It's not a lot of morality in no, this movie. No, if, and even the taxi driver has no morality because she's getting off on the fact that he she keeps asking what it felt like to kill somebody. Yeah, right. And that actress uh, did a film for them that Tarantino produced coming out of Tallahassee in Florida State. They had done a short, hmm. uh, and then she did a, a film. What uh, uh, I forget what the film is called, but she is like she's a um, what? They, what was Dexter? Uh, what was his job? I was going to say a serial killer. No, no, no. But he was like, but he, uh, he analyzed the blood. Uh, or, oh, it's like a, a forensic. Like yeah, yeah, she was, forensic. She's, Thank you. She's a person like, who cleans up. Yeah, she's kind of she's a person who cleans up yeah. uh, uh, death scenes through the whole movie that she was in. Mm. So they put her in this to kind of introduce her to the audiences before mm. they shot the film. And oh, she's fantastic in that small little vignette with him in, in the taxi, which yeah. you bring up, which you brought up earlier, Sasha. This whole homage to these old forties, mm-hmm. fifties noirs, where you could see even in Double Indemnity, shot. you can yeah. see yeah. in Double Indemnity when they're in the taxi like that. Yeah, yeah, I well, love that. Yeah. And uh, uh, we go back to the motel, and we meet yep. Bruce Willis's very sweet and cute French girlfriend. She is Fabian. 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 Yes. She's my least favorite character in this whole thing. Uh, yeah, I can see I that. Because I'm like, there are certain moments, if he says, mm-hmm. bitch, get on the, in the car, we're on the motorcycle, bitch, get on the motorcycle. <laughs> but like, that's what's so weird about her character, is yeah. she is from a complete... Why is this happening? 
Shut up. <laughs> she's just a normal person in this weird world. Mm. She bad. I don't know if I would say she's normal. I would. I wouldn't go so far as to say normal. Okay. She's unsettling in her way. Well, this is my opinion, right? It's, it's. I don't. I think she's actually quite not normal for this world that she's in. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I, yeah. I agree. I agree. Yeah. It, she's too intellectual at times, and too. But she's a. She's. She's almost. She's childlike. She's, she's very childlike. She's, she's the reason everything goes wrong. Right. If, if he didn't have to go back to get the watch, right. then Vincent would be fine. They wouldn't have to deal with the right. gimp. They wouldn't have to get raped. Like, but then this is so the many kind, things happen because of her. But this is the kind of woman he would end up with because he has these flights of anger. He throws that television. In. Like not a lot of women are going to deal with a man like that. And so you, she is obviously they both have issues they're working out that they haven't come to terms with. And this is the kind of relationship that they have to be. And he has to feel like this domineering guy who who goes from one who goes from zero to sixty. And then 60 back down to zero. Right. Because after he throws the television, he sits down and says, it's not your fault. I obviously didn't make it clear to you that it was really important to me. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, like he totally, he's like, okay, I'm calm down. Because I love you. I'm going to speak this out. But okay, then he has these okay, moments. Sorry. Okay. Right. <laughs> well, she she exists as like a mechanism for to reveal things about his character. Yeah. You know, which is this anger and then this, I want everything to be sweet and normal yeah, yeah, and I'm yeah. filled with rage and I'm, yeah. you know. It's a strange, it's an odd character well, for Bruce Willis. Well, she has a rage too. Like when he does the mongoloid voice, she fucking yells at him. Like that, she sure. really says, "Like shut up." Like she doesn't say, "Honey, stop it." She says, "Shut up." So she has her own things. There is a very deep relationship going on between them. I mean, mm-hmm. like he he lo- he loves her, but she's so unsettling. And once again, this is one of these actresses who went off and did these independent films that were right. part of the Miramax thing because she was a nice nin in that whatever the Henry Miller movie they did with Uma Thurman oh, as right. well, yeah. and uh, Fred yeah. Ward as uh, as Henry Miller in the That's film. Right. I can't remember what the name of the film is offhand, but yeah, that was the, the um, something about the doves or something. Mm. Oh, that's Wings of the Dove. That's Helena Bonham no, Carter. No, what? But which one? Was it? It was something like that. Yeah, what was I it don't called? remember. Because it was it was NC seventeen or, or X because they have I lesbian sex. I, 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 I got it. Oh god, okay. not lesbian sex. <laughs> okay, you guys keep talking. I'm gonna find this because this is gonna drive me nuts. It's like there's a bird thing in it. It's like okay. What's it's not it? Henry and June. No. Yeah, it's, it's Henry and oh, June. You're right. That's the name of it. It's Henry Jesus. and June. Boom. Um. Uh. <laughs> you're gonna cut all that out, aren't you? Yes. You yes, I will cut all that. Oh, out. I hate you. <laughs> all right, go ahead. Um, I will cut some of it out. The schmodown. Damn it. All right, go ahead. <laughs> I'd like people to know that I know a lot about films. Go ahead. Um, we're doing a whole podcast so that you know a lot about films. Uh, people podcast, are turning on in the podcast from is my the Fabian. The podcast <laughs> is my Fabian. Yeah, she bugs me. I, I can respect that, Sasha. The way you're built, I can understand that. Yeah, it would drive you nuts, a woman like that. So this, you, this, you tough as nails, girl. Pack the friggin' watch, <laughs> dummy. She doesn't pack the watch. She held it up his ass cheeks. I held this watch in my ass, and you can't put it in a fucking bag, <sighs> bitch. Uh, well, do you know Walken suffered for that he watch? He you did. don't forget that watch anywhere. So, so Butch has got to go back, and yeah. I love he he sneaks up on the apartment building, and this yeah. is full like L.A. That apartment you know, building is so L.A. Right? So L.A. Yeah. It's the Valley. He goes in slowly, unlocks the door, walks in. I guess everything's cool. Let's have some pop tarts. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and there, by the way, Ralph's brand pop tarts, which I like. What the fuck are you doing, pop tarts? Get the goddamn watch to get out of the fucking apartment. No, but everything's cool. Everything's cool <gasps> until he sees the gun yeah. Yeah. and we hear the toilet flush. And I have to say, when the toilet flushes, I was so sad. And when the door opens, I'm like, <gasps> and honestly, that was the first moment that I really realized just like it was sort of, a, yeah. well, 
I don't want to uh, spoiler. It's like a Ned Stark moment where I'm like, but you can't. Oh, yeah. That's you exactly how people cannot right. rip away from me this yeah. person that I've come to care so much about. Yeah. And so suddenly and meaningless. This is no meaning to this. Yeah. It's completely like a weird coincidence and now he's dead. Yeah. Yep. He doesn't have a cool moment at the end. No. He doesn't have no speech. We, we don't resolve anything. Nothing. It's just like now you're dead. And I, I love <sighs> I love that he's reading Modesty Blaze. <laughs> which is a really insane they've done four movies of Modesty Blaze it's an interesting comic strip or a strip that became a whole it's about this like, woman who finds her like uh, she was unknown and they find her she was this assassin she leads this group of like uh, this underworld group she got her name from her, her sensei who, who named her Modesty but then she took the name Blaze because that was the person who trained Merlin the magician so it's just like, an interesting character and this is what never Vincent even Vega that. is reading I had no idea I just, oh really I just liked oh, that he yeah. was reading something because that the who doesn't read on the toilet that's just weird <laughs> well listen kids people Derek the good directors put shit in films for a reason that's sure for symbolism no of course he did yeah. I just never noticed what it was yeah and and now guess what Butch has won Butch has won everything is gonna be great yep <laughs> driving down in his little Honda Civic or whatever that car is it's such a yeah. weird car it's a great car yeah. choice yeah. it's a great car choice drive along and then who should be right in front of him with some donuts or something that's right <laughs> but wait, no, no one does smirking joy better than Bruce Willis no one yeah, no one great. no one yeah Ving Rhames is stop and turn if you've ever been caught doing anything, that's the moment you feel that. That's the, you just viscerally remember that moment when someone catches you doing something. That was and such a great thing. His choice as to what to do Ram and him. how to yeah. perceive yeah. is also such a Tarantino. You're like, mm -hmm. okay, he'll go around him. Maybe this will happen, but no, no, no. It's run straight over him and then immediately get into a massive car accident yep. yeah. and nothing that you expected is going to be the same. And then it's not like. It, Either of them is still going to like lay down. Right. They're going to chase each other. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be chaos. Right. Ah. And 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 again, it's just completely surprising. Like you have no way to expect where this is. Even this, you couldn't expect. And yeah. You definitely can't expect the pawn where, shop where the movie oh. goes next. Now, which is my it favorite is story. So horrible. This it's your fav favorite. Oh, this is my favorite part of the film. Really? Oh yeah. This whole the sequence, gift? the whole Bruce Willis, everything up until the end, is my favorite story in the film. Absolutely. Oh, man. Absolutely. Well, let's get into uh, it. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> We come in. <laughs> put my red ball Bruce in my Willis mouth is now. Gonna, yeah. Bruce Willis is going to kill Marcellus Wallace. Guy behind the counter pulls out a shotgun. Yep. And we think, well, he's going to call the police. He's going to stop the fighting. He's going to... No. Mm -mm. We knock Bruce Willis out. We go to black. Mm -hmm. We come out of black. And this might be, in a film so defying of expectations, yeah. so unpredictable, the most shocking moment... Oh, yeah. Without question. This is I, why I love the story. This part of the film. Uh, <laughs> I want to hear how Steve's going to describe this. Good. Uh, we're at a shot with Bruce Willis and, <laughs> and Ving Rhames, Marcellus and Butch, both tied to chairs yes. with big ball gags in their mouths. Red Hot, balls. drooling ball drooling. gags. It is a terrifying moment. Yes. Because in this moment, and you see it, I don't know if it's their acting or just the way it's set up, that they're coming to grips with the fact that they're... Figuratively and literally fucked. Yep. Yes. 
There is nothing <clears throat> they can do. Yeah, they're they're just they're done. You know how I said earlier that I didn't I wouldn't know the word MacGuffin if it weren't for Pulp right. Fiction. I certainly would not have learned the word ball gag <laughs> when I, I was in really, high school. I or gimp had it not yeah. been for this moment. I had heard the word gimp, but yeah. it was used for like someone who was limping or yes. something. Yeah. It was right. not this. And also with these sort of like crazy redneck pawn Zed, shop sex Zed. slave owners right. not what you would necessarily predict right but this is also flies in the face of this idea of is he using the n-word too much no he gives these two racists their horrible comeuppance oh man one is sliced to death by a samurai sword and the other one is going to have a bunch of pipe-hidden brothers Going medieval on his ass. And oh, that, that is going to be. Oh, I love that moment. Right, right? And this is why this is my favorite part of it. Because the most fucked up thing that you could happen to, you could imagine happening to you in the most insane situation. Because you're just above civilization. You're literally steps away from civilization and safety. And you're about to get fucked in the ass, God knows what else, <laughs> with a ball gag in your mouth. And you are, these two men who had been fighting each other are now equals in this situation. Well, they reduce the status to equals. Well, right? and they're coming to terms with the thought that we might be here forever. Yes. When you say That's what bring I mean. out the gimp. Now, Ooh. we don't know where the gimp came from. We don't know we don't. how he got into this situation. Yep. Maybe he got into this situation the same way as Butch and Marcellus at right. this moment. It's like, this could be it for you. For yep. the, like, and, and, the, and you see that, at least that's the thoughts going through my mind that I'm looking at their faces, yeah. them going like, and also to have been right in the middle of the most intense life and death struggle of yeah. their lives. Yeah. And now they're in this other thing. Right. It is crazy. And right. then when he opens the door... On like the full bent over the yeah. like hump bench. I don't know what it would be called. Right. I think the technical term is hump bench. Hump bench. <laughs> bent Available over the hump from bench. Amazon right now. <laughs> and Ving Rhames, and we just see the face with yeah. the katana about to come up, yeah. and then and then Ving Rhames's way of dealing with it, of like letting him know, like we are good now. Yeah. Like we're square. Don't tell anybody about this. Mm-hmm. Well, and I love too that Bruce Willis goes, "Are you okay?" Yeah, and he and I love Ving Rhames' answer, which is something like, "No, man, I'm pretty fucking far from okay." Yeah, that is a kiss, and that's a man who is fairly clear about who he is at this moment. I'm not okay. I'm not okay. No, I'm pretty fucking far from okay. I'm pretty fucking far from okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but then going like, "Yeah, we're cool," but Um, yeah, but I had to back up. Because my favorite moment in this movie is mm. Bruce Willis turning back. Yes! Yes! Oh, when Bru- he's halfway through. He is free. He is free. His enemy, Ma- who, yep. who literally was trying to kill him a moment mm-hmm. before, is having horrible things happen to him. Mm-hmm. He doesn't like that guy. Right. And yet he stops and turns back. And this is like as perfect a hero moment as I can think of it in any movie. Mm-hmm. That you, you're going back to save your enemy from a fate worse than death. Yes. And I love, too, the trading up of weapons. Yes. Uh-huh. It's so great. Oh, a hammer. No. Baseball bat. No. Nope. Oh, chainsaw. No. Katana. Yes. Yeah. And when he, and I remember in the movie theater, because also like years of martial arts and I using swords and mm-hmm. things like that. And, and when he saw pulled out that katana, I was just like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> this is the greatest thing ever. Right. And then when he actually, after he has that moment of rescue, yeah. he rides off very literally into the sunset yeah. on, on a, a chopper. chopper. It's not a motorcycle, no. No. baby. No. It's a chopper. It's a chopper. It's a chopper. But this is why it is my favorite story, because it, it, this is as, as man as you can get. 
This mm. whole sequence with Bruce Willis is as male as you can get. Boxing, and, choppers, yeah, it's a butt whole sex. nine French yeah, girls. I had the same feeling. <laughs> well, yeah, cute little French girls. I had the same thing feeling with because of, of my love of samurai films. When he pulled the katana out, same thing. But once again, this is his homage to seventies exploitation stuff, right? Yeah, sure. Those samurai or those uh, uh, kung fu films from that time. Although they'd hardly ever use swords, it's an homage to that Japanese culture. And so you have the Chinese Japanese culture. You have that all there wrapped up the Asian culture, all there, just kind of. If Provocative, you know, and it, yeah. that's I love that. So when he pulls it out and does what he does, and let's not discount the, the actor who plays the uh, the deputy sheriff, whatever that guy is, Zed, whoever plays Zed, and then the pawn shop guy, he is watching with such maniacal yeah. glee, disgusting, horrible, maniacal glee that when they get their comeuppance, you have no moment of sympathy for these two guys. Oh, of course. Right. Absolutely zero. Yeah. When he Zed, shoots him in the balls, Zed's like dead, baby. Zed's dead. Zed's dead. It's so great. Um, and that's it for Butch. Yeah. Yes. Bye, Butch. Bye, Butch. We got to get into the Bonnie situation. Bonnie situation. <laughs> Deep into it. So, uh, Vincent Vega's dead. Oh, wait. We're suddenly back in, in this scene that at this point I'd literally completely forgotten about. Yeah. Like, we're back in that room with these guys who ripped off Marcellus Wallace, and we're in the bathroom where apparently there's been another guy the whole time. <laughs> and we're going to revisit the scenes, and we rehear our great speech from Sam Jackson. We hear the gunshots. Our guy in the bathroom comes out with a really big gun. A fires, hand cannon. A hand cannon fires yeah. right at Vincent Jules. It hits nothing. Yep. yep. It is divine intervention, according to Jules. Um, this Jerry Seinfeld looking guy. He does look right? like Jerry Seinfeld. I always thought for years it was Jerry the same Seinfeld. Thought. His career would have gone a really different direction. <laughs> yeah, um, we end up in a car. Uh, we're having a conversation about whether or not it's divine intervention with Phil Lamar, who had who had right. betrayed his friends because yeah. that's how they got they found him. Yep, and uh, and, and they hit does, a bump. I know <laughs> Vincent does not know the proper uh, taking care of a weapon. Apparently, no. there is not finger on the trigger. No, <laughs> no, well, you're just talking in a car, gesturing that's bouncing around. No way. I went to the shooting range years ago with an ex boyfriend, and I didn't know you're not supposed to have your finger on the trigger. Oh yeah, and I reload the gun and it went off right by my face Holy oh my shit. and I put it down and I started crying <laughs> and yes, I was like I don't know what and then I realized there were like pock marks all over the ceiling and floor of people who had done similar things but <laughs> yeah because when you watch movies it looks like to like pull a trigger no. you gotta really yeah. no you literally hair trigger is a very real thing yeah, you put, put Vincent, your finger anywhere near that that's why you don't go over bumps <laughs> with your finger on the trigger you went over a bump <laughs> That's a great moment. <laughs> and also the splatter oh. against the back window. And the Everywhere. shock of it. Yeah. It is some pretty, you know, it's a pretty brutal moment. And now we're in deep trouble. Yeah, we we're are. We're in the middle of the valley. But the best part about it is, is they're not like, oh my God. It's like, God damn it. Yeah. yeah. Why did this? But I like this suit and this can't happen and we got to clean the car and it's a fucking mess. Right. And yeah. the only place we have to go, the only guy we know in the valley is Jimmy. Yeah. <laughs> Which is Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's funny. He's not a good actor. At all. <laughs> I'd say of most of the things I've seen him in, this is probably the more tolerable. I would agree with that. Because the guy's supposed to be such a doofus, and his particular <laughs> yeah. style sort of sinks up in a way that I accept it more. But he's not good. Okay. Actor, directors, who do you like? Of Directing Acting? of directors who are good actors, yeah, Kenneth Branagh, Robert Redford, well, Orson Wells. No, you can't do Kevin actors Costner. who are directors. Stop, 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 stop. Oh, you got to go the other way. You got to go. Sidney Pollack. There you go. Sydney There's Pollack a good one. Sidney Pollack, a director oh, who is an actor, oh. not an actor. You can't say John, Ben Affleck. John Huston. 
There's another good John one. Houston. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, there are a few. Like, would you put Woody Allen in the actor turned director yes, category absolutely. or the director turned actor category? Uh, I, I would put him in the same time. in the writer turned actor, actor turned, turned director, director category. Yeah, fair, fair. yeah, yeah. I mean, but he's so clearly a control freak, mm. you know, really from the beginning. And he, by the way, is a really good actor. We're going to have to get to him. One of his films. Oh yeah. yeah, no, I. I think bunch. that probably out of all of them, Sidney Pollock's probably Sidney Pollock's so he's solid. so good. He's so talented. Yeah, yeah. I love him in Tootsie. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're a tomato. <laughs> I, I love Tim. anyway. So, yeah. but we Tarantino shows up Tarantino to shows not up. be Sydney Pollard. Yes, and and we got to call him the Wolf. And yeah. Then whew, I had such the hots for Harvey Keitel when I was younger. Wow. Oh yeah. Pre- because, previous to this movie. Oh or? yeah. Hello. Do we need to talk about the Bad Lieutenant the next I time I come on? Oh yeah, Bad Lieutenant I led into Reservoir Dogs, wow. which led into this. I my mother was very worried about. Obviously, me. as well she should be. I also had the major hots for uh, John Malkovich. What? Yeah, my mom. Uh, well, I had been a Keanu girl forever and a Patrick Swayze uh, girl, but then like. By I the got, way, right now I have an image of a of, like a photograph of you kind of sitting <laughs> sort of queen like with <laughs> Malkovich and Harvey Keitel kneeling beneath you, each one holding a foot. Well, let me tell you, honey, if I die. Let it be that way. <laughs> I have a new goal. Life goals. Life goals. Oh man, I love Kaitel so much. Oh, Malkovich wow. is just the best. I'll even watch a Squarespace commercial because I he enjoy him so much. Squarespace commercial. Yeah. but when he shows up yeah. as the wolf, yeah, Kaitel. This is like a role that you just dream of, not because it's meaty yeah, or yeah, yeah. hard, but because it's a role where you could just come in and be awesome, yeah, and then leave in yeah. a tuxedo. In a tuxedo. In I mean, tuxedo. it is as awesome as you could possibly. Yeah. Be. And what's so weird again, like. Mm. I'm going to say it again. We started with these guys who were doing this weird robbery. Then we yeah. end up in this murder. Then we went on this crazy date through this OD. And you continually forget about it. Yeah. When you're with the wolf, you're just thinking about, yeah, how are we going to clean? You, I honestly have kind of forgotten that Vince is dead. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so captivating. Thank it's, goodness. Because if you were thinking about it, how sad you would be. It would be very, very sad. Right. Yeah. And let's talk about the scene with like the hose. Them getting the hose and the glee Mm -hmm. that Harvey Keitel has as he's hosing them down. Oh, I love it. And that horrible wig with the blood chunks coming out of Jules's hair. Um, and, And we get everything cleaned up. We're in our outfits and we go, I love the moment after they get hosed down of yeah. like, here's some clothes and the cut to them and those <laughs> t-shirts and the, and the Santa Cruz shirt is just awesome. Santa Cruz slugs. Fantastic moment. <clears throat> yeah. And then uh, I'm completely blanking on the SNL actress's name who is oh, so yeah, delightful. Sweeney. Julie Sweeney, who ends up being his mm-hmm. girl that he like. She's lovely. His daughter. Jumps in the car and goes. It's his daughter. It's his no, daughter. it's just not his daughter. It's not his girlfriend. It's his no, daughter. No, 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 no. No, it's neither. It's neither. That is he basically they are friends and he's like come oh, with me and she ends right. up like they go to get a drink yeah. my bad that's right oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 but yeah. she's great and the whole sequence is so much fun yes and then and then we're in this breakfast restaurant and I wish I could remember sure if I enormous. recognized it or thought about it the first time I saw it that we were back in the same restaurant I did not I, I was I don't shocked. Know. I was shocked. I completely didn't remember. I had. I was like, "Oh, that's interesting." Yeah. And then it, the the scene switches. Yeah. And suddenly, I was like, "Well, that is genius." Yeah. 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 We're in the middle of a conversation about how Jules is just going to walk the earth like Kwai Chang Kane, mm-hmm. which I love because I love that show. I love that show as a yeah. kid. Loved it. Kung and, Fu. And uh, and then all of a sudden, you cut over and hey, there they are. Mm-hmm. And then the the realization the. Oh shit! It's right before they. Now you suddenly are remembering everything you've been through. It's like the anti crash. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's a crazy, crazy moment. And one thing that is weird is that Honey Bunny's line is different. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. she yells. And I always, I always, I, this is where I wish I could talk to Sally Menke and say, there had to be a reason that they only, that this camera angle didn't mm-hmm. work or this, yeah. something about it didn't work because that seems like a big mistake. I think it's probably that it was just a better take. Yeah. That's my assumption. Mm. For what they wanted to do at that moment in terms of where Jules was sitting and eyeline or some reason why they had to do it that way. Totally. No, my thought has always been that's what, that's what it sounded like from that location. No, but she says different she, words. Different oh, she says different yeah, words? they're different yeah. words. Yeah, fair. Yeah. One, um, is, yeah, one is I'm going to execute every motherfucking one of you and one is I'm going to execute every every last every last mother of, father every motherfucking last one of you yeah, yeah she's, like where the motherfucking goes is yeah. different okay oh, it's really yeah. the, in the conjunction of the motherfucker i mean if we're you know conjunction junctioning after school rocking this yeah thing, I, I think tarantino is the grammatical master of oh, yeah. fucking motherfucking and all other swear words totally and I, in this scene he doesn't just use them in dialogue yeah. he uses them on the best motherfucking wallet <laughs> in the motherfucking history of motherfucking time. Get my wallet out of the bag. Which one is it? It's the one that says bad motherfucker. And then he pulls out the wallet and it says bad motherfucker on it. That's and awesome. I, again, mind blown. And to this day, like why I don't own a wallet that says bad motherfucker, I'm realizing as I'm sitting here, I'm like, I have failed myself. For 23 years. It, it, God. Again, available right now on Amazon. I'm, I'm sure. sure. Right, it's right next I'm to the... Google. God, that's cool. The hump um, bench. And, yeah. and we get into... <laughs> and it's funny, as the now, because we were involved in them when they were robbing this diner in the beginning, going, yeah. huh, maybe this isn't such a good idea. Well, now we know it's not a good idea, because Jules is sitting there, mm-hmm. and, and Vince, Vincent's in the bathroom. Right. Again, <laughs> reading a book. Where did he get this book? I really want to know. It was probably in the car. Yeah, the car, no. The car went with Harvey Keitel. Oh, well, maybe he picked it up off uh, Tarantino's desk. And- no, he was not. He was not holding a book when he said goodbye to Harvey Keitel. Okay. And they're on foot. Was the book? The book must have been in the restaurant. Ew. Oh, maybe. It's like Artie. Was it already in the toilet? Oh, see, oh. I love this. I love continuity errors. Nice. I love things like this. This makes me so okay. happy. Not that it matters, but some of the worst continuity on film ever is Basic Instinct. Oh, There's God. a cap yeah. on the hot sauce bottle, cap off the hot sauce bottle. <laughs> All kinds of things. Wow, where did the book well, come from? Well, this isn't even, this is beyond continuity. This is logic. This is like he had to get the book from, and, and, where? and, and I don't know. Maybe it was at the front? What if he had, then he, and did he okay. leave with the book what in the, the last shot of the in? movie? Because oh he has God. to have the book when he gets killed by Bruce Willis. Right. But it's a different, but he's reading the comic book. But it's not oh, a comic no, no, book. No, it's not a comic book. Modesty Blaze is a book. I think it's the same book in both scenes. So, it's oh, a, so maybe okay. he had it tucked into his pants or something. In those little shorts? Yes, in the back. I don't know. Um, so, I love Jules's conversation with Tim Roth. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Is so great. And mm-hmm. the calmness, because we've seen Sam Jackson go to these operatic heights. Yeah. And now the intensity and the calmness and the stare is so great. And the contrast and reaction between Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer to what's going on is amazing. Vincent, <laughs> be cool. Yolanda, it's cool, baby. It's cool. We still just talking. Come on, point the gun at me. Point the gun at me. There you go. Now, Vincent, you just hang back and don't do a goddamn thing. Tell him we're still cool. Still cool, honey bunny. How we doing, baby? I, I gotta go pee. I'm gonna go home. Just hang in there, baby. You're doing great. I'm proud of you. And Ringo's proud of you. It's almost over. Tell her you're proud of him. Proud of you, honey bunny. I love you. 
I love you too, honey bunny. Yes. Yeah. And her performance, particularly, I want to pee. It's so great. It is. And I think that that's the thing that makes all of these characters, even though, I mean, you were saying, Roka, there is no, like, true morality in this tale. Right. There is so much humanity in it. And that's the thing, is that we can see Amanda Plummer have that moment, Mm -hmm. and you can see the love that Tim Roth has for her, and you can see... Uma Thurman being vulnerable yep. and same with Marcellus Wallace. Like right, even yeah. when he's at his angriest and I'm going to go medieval on these motherfuckers, you still see that he has a side that needs to be nurtured and cared for. When he lets Bruce go, that's your, you, you love yeah. Marcellus Wallace for yeah. letting Bruce yeah. Willis go in that moment. Cause and he doesn't have to either. That's why you care about every yeah. single one of these characters. Yeah, that's and, a great point. Yeah. yeah, I hadn't thought of it. They all have their vulnerable moments. Oh, they course. all get brought low. I really didn't think about it. We that wouldn't way. enjoy the movie if they didn't. Yeah. I feel like we yeah. wouldn't because they'd be just watching a bunch of assholes. Who, who wants to watch that? You got to give them humanity so we can connect to them. And in that moment when he's talking to Tim Roth, he's trying to save Tim Roth, which is him assuming this new mantle of his. Like if this had been blah blah, blah you'd have been dead. And he was saying about Ezekiel, like I used to say this shit because when you said that shit, it was yeah. your ass. But now I'm in this other place, and you caught me in the right time. Because yeah. right now you'd be fucking dead if yeah. I was. If this was a day ago, you'd be dead. I'm trying, but I'm real trying to hard. Right, I'm trying real, real hard. hard. I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. Well, the, and yeah. so it's great. In his Bible study analysis moment of this one um, verse in yeah. the Bible, you got to pay attention to yeah. what he's saying because it's it it is a fascinating little. Is it really in the Bible, by the way? Because yes. I just always assumed it was, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I'm it's assuming it was. Yeah, I, I never heard me to look it up. Never read the Torah anyway. By the way, I Ezekiel's love that... in the Torah. <laughs> I love that there's a rainbow behind Sasha's oh, head. Oh, right there he is! I like rainbows. <gasps> oh wow, there's a really pretty one. <laughs> I'm putting my phone, I'm putting my microphone down to go take an Instagram <laughs> behind the scenes featurette. It's a rainbow. Look at that thing; it's huge. That's a really good one. That's like a Muppet movie rainbow. Yay! So, okay. yes, where he's talking to Tim Roth and try to—he almost tries to save his soul in a way, like go, don't be what I am, go be something else. Oh, that's totally what it yeah. is, and it's him—he is saving his own soul in this yes. moment because yes. we see he's had no compunction about killing in the past, right. like that's you know, and now he's making this other choice. And I love Vince is just kind of in the background. You yeah, know, he comes in, Jules tells him to back up, and he kind of does. And then he hands Tim Roth fifteen hundred dollars, mm-hmm. and that's like this is the price of buying my soul. Yeah, it seems like totally. And then we quietly shuffle out of the movie. But strut, strut out. Is it, I don't think <laughs> that's a strut. As much as you can in those. Which clothes. one, Jules or Vince? Vince. It's Travolta strutting out because he's like I think he's he kind of shuffles. He's out. walking like this because they that's that's Vincent. And what's great about that the juxtaposition, because Vince is going to stay who he is, which is why he dies. Mm. Jules does not, which is why he doesn't. We don't see him die in the movie. We see Vince die because Vince doesn't do what Jules does and takes the sign and, beca- and saves his soul and goes and walks the earth. He goes back to Marcellus Wallace. Marcellus Wallace sends him out to Bruce Willis. He gets killed. That's how it works. And he gets killed coming out of the toilet, which is ironic as hell when you go back and see the end of the movie. But I love the fact that you, you are introduced to these two badass killers and then they spend the rest of the movie showing, like, undercutting, like, showing their humanity, their vulnerability. So that by the end, even in that shitty clothes that they're wearing, that cheesy Kmart clothes they're wearing, they can still strut out of that diner with a little bit of badass nature to them. Sure. And you love them all over again. It's totally. brilliant. Sure. With it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, 
<laughs> We've reached the end <laughs> of Pulp Fiction. And what's funny is, is uh, I remember in the movie theater seeing it the first time and just kind of having to sit. Yeah. I feel kind of how I feel right now, which is like, how do I reckon with this? What am I supposed to feel about what I just saw? You watch it again. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like it's, a, I don't think it's a deep movie. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think there's deep philosophical questions mm-hmm. to be explored, but it is a uh, complicated and unknowable movie on mm-hmm. a certain level. And it's so rich. It's so, yeah. it's so experiential too. Like sometimes, you know, you get to the end of something, whether it's a concert or, you know, like a last day of a vacation and you have to kind of like soak in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Pulp Fiction was yeah. is you have right. to like soak in everything you've been through so you can like fully absorb it. And then, there's also something really shattering about going back to real life. And that's the thing that's so transportive about great filmmaking is you're in an entirely different world. And whether it's a dark, gritty one or one where people's heads get blown off or whatever, yeah. it's kind of cool to live in a world where you can go get a big Kahuna burger. And sometimes it's a little sad to leave right that. Now. I'm telling you. <laughs> follow it with a red apple cigarette. It's the only way to go. No, the only way to go is with Harvey Keitel and John Malkovich <laughs> okay. holding your feet. That's it. Voila. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a fantastic image yeah so something i kept thinking about when watching the movie was trying to clarify in my head what is this movie in chronological order mm. mm-hmm. so w- this movie starts somewhere in the 70s yes. with a little kid hearing this guy come up and tell him about this gold watch he had in his ass yes okay and that's the first moment that is of the, this that movie. is the first moment chronologically okay. yep and then we I'm go i'm writing this down and then we go <laughs> very early in the morning to these two guys in a car talking okay. about stuff okay and they're heading into this room and they have this confrontation yeah. where they shoot some guys yeah. they grab one of the guys they leave the room they almost get killed uh-huh. they're talking about almost getting killed when the third guy in the back of the car gets killed shot in the head okay i shot marvin in the face <laughs> so we rush so we rush over to jimmy's house yes the, the wolf shows up we clean out the car you're yes. 30 minutes away i'll be there in 10 yeah i love that moment <laughs> i'll be there in 10 uh, we get into our Santa Cruz shorts and T-shirts. We say goodbye to the wolf and the body. Yes. And we say, let's get breakfast. Mm-hmm. And it's now maybe what Bonnie was going to show up at like 930 or something. Yes. Right. So it's now like maybe 10 in the morning. And they go to the diner. And we go to the diner where honey, where we're having a conversation about walking the earth like Kwai Chang Kang. Right. Mm-hmm. And at the same moment, Honey Bunny and Pumpkin are having a conversation about why it's better to rob this diner than robbing a bank. Totally. Yes. Yeah. And uh, they get up. There's a robbery. Jules talks our way out of the robbery. Mm-hmm. And now somehow they get home, maybe by a taxi or they take a bus because they're like up in North Hollywood somewhere. Yeah. And they get back to Marcellus's bar, mm-hmm. maybe in the early afternoon. This has all been the same day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Vince is worried about his date with Mia. Is the date with Mia that night? I think so. Yeah. I thought so. Yeah. So he must have gone home, changed his clothes, because he didn't even have that much time, because he shows up at Lance's house. It's still daytime. Mm -hmm. So that means he did all that in one day. Yes. He has literally gone from the black suit to covered in blood, almost got killed, robbery in the diner. Yeah. Meeting Bruce Willis in the in the bar with Marcellus Wallace, goes home, yes. changes clothes, yes. immediately goes to Lance to get drugs, gets high, and then because it, it always seems sort of early evening when he's driving to pick right. up Mia, yeah, right. you know. Yeah. So then there's the whole thing with Mia and the OD. Now the question is, is is the boxing match that same night? No, I'll tell you why it's not that same night. Because Marcellus is in town. Oh right. And right. I was thinking about this too. Is that I don't even th- at first I thought it was the next night. 
But I don't think it's the next night because if Marcellus was just gone for one night, why would he need Vince to, mm-hmm. to watch his girl? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's got to be a couple nights later. Yes. And the other thing that you made me think of is is Jules is not in the sequence of looking for Butch because right. at this point he's already said, I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So it's maybe a few nights later. We have this boxing match. Yeah. And then and boxing matches are usually on the weekends. Yeah. It might be a weekend. Yeah. And Bruce goes home. And I'm thinking that that night, Vincent Vega got sent to Bruce to Butch's apartment that night. Mm-hmm. And he's been waiting there all night. Yeah. And which is why he ended up having to go to the bathroom because he's just sitting around being bored the whole time. Yeah. Yes. And then. And he was there long enough that he got lazy and put right. the gun down. Yep. And then he dies. And then Butch goes off, hits uh, Marcellus Wallace with the car. Yes. We go into the pawn shop, out of the pawn shop, rescue Marcellus Wallace. Pick up the girl with the chopper, and that's the chronological end of the movie. Absolutely. Yep. And okay. the chopper is how we end it. Yeah. yeah. That it movie, end. just so you know, yeah. is good. It's not, it's as not great. great. It's not no. as great. Yeah. It's not great. No. Not as great. No, it sort of drifts, kind of drifts around. Yeah. yeah. Whereas this movie that's completely out of order yeah. is just powerful. Yeah. Paced and intense, and you never feel like you're missing anything by leaving a storyline, that one you're like meandering and it goes and Mm -hmm. things happen. Although what's interesting about the way you broke it down, so initially Pulp Fiction was going to be uh, sort of three, it was going to be closer to like what Grindhouse is. It was going to be, or like what Four Rooms was. It was supposed to be a trilogy, but a film told in a trilogy. So there was going to be one story done by, uh, Tarantino, one story d- written and directed by uh, Roger, Roger Avery, Avery, and one story that was by a director that was never actually named. Mm. It would have been, been me. It would have been yeah. you, Steve. It's but as chance. you're talking about it, it's interesting because it could have been the... If you get rid of Walken's ass, you could have the car be one section, Marcellus Wallace and Mia be another section through the OD, and then mm. the fight is another section, and that is three movies. And then mm, you just right. move Walken's ass down into the fight section, mm-hmm. and what you have is still the film that they kind of were going to do. You were still going to yeah. have a trilogy, sure. and that is a one-film trilogy. Yep. Um, I, like, I just keep hearing moving Walken's ass. Triptych. Move, uh, just move Walken's ass uh, and you have a triptych, a cinematic triptych. It's going to be damn. It's going to be damn. Um, <laughs> and it's funny, too, because I am, as John knows, I am a linear person yes in fact one of the things i do with all these podcasts is if they're out of order i move things around until i make them linear because that's how my brain works i like that and i love this movie but i cannot understand how one can conceive of making a movie in this way oh yeah i understand how flashbacks work that i could do Mm -hmm. but i can't just let's just put things out of order and doing it the right way i don't know how you think that way well, I'm with yeah. you. I, I'm much more linear of thought and very mm-hmm. OCD. And that is something until you brought it up today where it's like, oh, right. This there is another way that this story could have been told. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't think it would have been as satisfying. Well, this is why I love Arrival because Arrival plays with that. True. And that's is why uh, this is my favorite film of the year uh, last year because of that notion because that re- it, it's so difficult to do non-linear film and make it interesting. Yep. And I think Arrival really really did a great job of it. And this film obviously is, you know, like yeah. the number one thing uh, of being able to do it, you yeah. know. And I I it's it was so much fun to revisit it again. 
you know, and you enjoy it even more. Like for me, I enjoy it even more as I get older because there are things that I understand or connect to differently than I did when I was watching it in my 20s, you mm-hmm. know, and so it's so much fun to see these, to be the older guy now all of a sudden and identifying with Vic and Jules a little bit, I mean, with Jules and, uh, and Vincent a little bit more and that whole situation, you know, and then of course, having dated a few Mias in my life, uh, like it's, it's so funny now, older to watch this movie again and kind of see these things that you see in other people or you've had these kind of versions of these experiences with other people. It's just awesome. And this is what's so great about Tarantino as a director and as a writer all around. So Sasha, what are your final thoughts on Pulp Fiction? First of all, I'm so grateful that you guys wanted to talk about it because oh. this has been one of my favorite films for over two decades. So to be able to revisit it and to discuss it in depth like this for me is just an uber treat. Awesome. Um, I feel like you were so right at the start of this, Steve, when you said that we should code things pre Pulp Fiction and post Pulp Fiction Mm. because it really is one of the most influential things that has happened in my lifetime and I see it in so many ways outside of what the movie actually did like independent cinema is entirely different you're talking Mm. about Arrival I was thinking about La La Land and the color palette I was thinking about how we have like the perception of certain actors based wholly on what they Mm. did in this movie and it really is incredible and for a man before we started recording we were talking about how for two people at this round table, this is not their favorite Tarantino, (laughs) that you can have this not be because his body of work is that Mm -hmm. incredible and that prolific and that profound is saying a lot. It's true. Yeah. Mm. Um, So for me, what's funny is, is like like I said, this is not my favorite. I think Reservoir Dogs is my favorite. Mm. I just love Reservoir Dogs. It's a great movie. Kill Bill Um, is mine. Kill Bill, they're both. um, I felt I need to say that for, yeah. Oh, look sick. at you. You took the one that's six hours. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I love so, it. So I really like this movie. And I actually worked on the DVD of it. So I kind of watched it probably mm-hmm. too much in the late 90s. And what's really interesting, this is going to sound weird, is I love this movie more now talking about it mm. than I loved it last night watching it. I agree completely. Is that I've had such a ball and it's been so much fun to dig into it. And this is the thing about films that you know that is obvious if you've listened to the cinephiles but they don't just exist in the moment that you experience them films exist in our ability to go back to them Mm -hmm. to examine them to explore them to talk about them to quote them to reference them and pulp fiction is one of those movies that exists beyond what it is on the screen Mm -hmm. it exists in this way in relationships between people and things that we share and digging into it has been so much fun um that it makes me now want to just go watch the movie again yeah. and then talk about it some more yeah. is that, and that's a lot of what this podcast is about is that it's fun to talk about movies. Absolutely. I gotta say, I feel like Tarantino would be totally proud. Oh, oh, I'm sure. I God, feel I like you so. would. Yeah. yeah. But now I'm just like, okay, so I gotta go home. I gotta go watch true romance. I gotta go watch reservoir <laughs> oh, yeah, dogs. Yeah. I gotta just like, I'm certainly going to have to watch bad Lieutenant. That's an offshoot. But still, <laughs> I just got it. Cause it's awesome. And you know, penis. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note Hello. Hello. Um, that's, that's what we think about uh, Pulp Fiction and of course we'd love to hear what you think you can always visit us on our Facebook page it's at the Cinephiles C-I-N-E dash F-I-L-E-S if you want to subscribe to us on iTunes please do and while you're visiting iTunes you know what Apple really likes they like reviews and so we'd like you to leave us a review I would say five star. I think this sure. episode five deserves stars. five stars. Super five star. Five star review. It's a bad motherfucker episode. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're not an Apple guy and you want to listen to and subscribe to us on Stitcher, well, subscribe to us on the Cinephiles there. But 
Stitcher hates hyphens. Is that to qualify as racism? I don't know. What? <laughs> I take it as. They're, My last name is anti, hyphenate. They're anti-hyphen. Wow, so you jerks. have to search for Cine Files, two words, no hyphen, and you could subscribe to us there. If you want to reach me, you can always reach me on Twitter at SR Morris. John, where can they reach you? You guys can always reach me at The Roca Says, R-O-C-H-A, on Twitter and on Instagram. I always love talking about films, so definitely tag us, leave the comments, everything Steve said. We love it. And Sasha, if people want to get in touch with you, how do they do it? Uh, you can find me at Sasha Pearl Raver, also Twitter and Instagram. Pearl is spelled P-E-R-L, no A. And my feet are freely available <laughs> to any Malkovich or Kaitel out there who just wants to grab on them. You heard, heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. The feet are available. <laughs> I, I want to say one last thing. Sasha, thanks so much for oh taking God, the time yeah. to do this. because it's, awesome. it's It's when we started this podcast, we didn't know who we were going to be able to get, what we were going to be able to talk about. And the fact that people more and more coming on and, and like having a blast with us it yeah. just means a lot just this is super fun this yeah. was so fun there was a rainbow yeah and there was a rainbow Absolutely. which i think is divine intervention it's still there hell yeah um <laughs> so as as god blesses the cinephiles <laughs> oh. we will say goodbye that's it for this week and we will see you next time <laughs> <laughs>